Hey folks, due to Joe from Two Dudes One Double Feature, just wanted to clarify something real quick. So V for Vendetta for most audiences came out in 2006. Uh, we labeled that the year it came out as 2005, and I think a lot of this is because a like sites like IMDb and Letterbox just have it as 2005 because it premiered, you know, at festivals and things like that in 2005. So just wanted to clarify that real quick. Also, spoilers ahead for V for Vendetta and Watchmen, particularly with Watchmen in both the graphic novel and the film, because there is a twist of sorts. Anyway, on to the disclaimer. Rorschach's Journal, April 22nd, 2022. Today, a new episode came out of my favorite podcast. It's not for kids, and the opinions that these podcasters have do not belong to their employers. The world will look up and shout. Listen to Two Dudes, One Double Feature, and I'll look down and whisper, Hell yeah. Welcome everyone to Two Dudes, One Double Feature, the show in which two dudes talk two films, and that is about it. I am Dude One, Richard. And I'm Dude Two. Let me start that over again, because I've been eating. (laughs) 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 Oh, I feel feel so related. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I'm Dude Two Fat Ass. (laughs) <laughs> nah, more like chunky ass. Chunky. You know. Chunk. Yeah, just a little just a little chunk. I'm you a, no, you know what? Dad bod. Dad bod. Dad bod. Yeah. I keep it sexy. Yeah. Because at least there, you know, it'll be sexy. Whereas if you're just fat ass, so you just seem like an asshole. <laughs> like, like, you just seem like a large asshole. Oh, man. <laughs> um, but anyway, yes, mm. welcome to our show. Um we do have a very exciting episode for you guys today, but obviously, before I get into any of that, how you doing, dude two, uh, fat ass? <laughs> Where do I begin? There's a lot I've been through the last, uh, nothing ter- Two weeks. Terrible. Well, one thing. W- one week. One week. For one us, w- one week. For whatever. But it, yeah, I've been fine. Uh, you know, just Easter. We're recording this the day before Easter, so we're just getting ready for that. On my mom's birthday. Happy birthday, mom. Yes, happy birthday, Tina. Um, I just feel like our family, it's fun, but it's like, I feel like our family does more for Easter than most people do. And Mm -hmm. it's like, it feels like just an event onto itself. Where it's just like, it's almost like gross in a way, but (laughs) it's, you know, it's fine. Uh, so that's why... I'm recording as late as I am today. Uh, I slept like nine hours last night. Um, that's not bad. Part of that's because I stayed up late playing Guardians of the Galaxy because I never finished it. I'm still playing it. Um, you like it? I oh yeah, I love it. It's a lot of fun. Um, it just oh, makes yeah. me miss the Guardians of the Galaxy, um, which is why I'm excited that I'll be able to get on uh, Cosmic Rewind when I'm at Epcot later this year. You know, I just love mm. the, I love those characters. Um, I I saw some movies. I saw Sonic the Hedgehog. 
you know, the second one, which is just kind of crazy that with our with the way this pandemic's been going, we have two Sonic the Hedgehog movies. We've we've lived through two Sonics within the pandemic. It's kind of um just wow. Um it was fun, you know, I I think it's one of those cases where they really need to pay whatever they're paying Jim Carrey, they need to triple it. Because mm-hmm. he's the, like, not that to say that everything else in the movie is bad. Like, Ben Schwartz does a fine job as Sonic. Idris Elba is amusing um, as Knuckles. It's great that an actual voice voice actress is playing uh, Tails. <laughs> um, what's her face? Uh, is it Colleen O'Shaughnessy or something like that? For, I couldn't tell it, you. Well, it's nice that she gets to be at premieres and stuff. And she's an actual voice actress, not just, like, a celebrity playing a character which is nice and i've never been like oh my god jim carrey but like he adds so much to these movies like there's just like like any other you give any other actor the lines that he has to deliver in this movie or like the character and they would fail utterly it would be disaster and the crazy the crazy thing too is like if this was made in the 90s or like in the sort of heightened height of his career he wouldn't have made the second one no, because he never did. Because like he, like famously, he never did sequels. And then recently, I think ever since Dumb and Dumber Two, he started doing sequels. So he did that, and then now he's done Sonic Two. I think he might have done. Well, technically, he did Kick Ass Two, even though he kind of disowned that movie after the fact. But I mean, he wasn't in the first one, so I don't really know if that counts. Yeah, like, he never really did sequels outside of that. And then like Ace Ventura was the only other like sequel he did. Other than that, he just kind of avoided. Yeah doing any sort of sequels also at this screening it really just was like there really is a sonic fandom because the after credit scene w- might have been the wildest reaction ever mm-hmm. I've, I've ever heard to anything even like cap getting mjolnir you know <laughs> iron man snapping like, anything that you could think of it's just like nope i'm not gonna this say it i'm not gonna say what's in the after credit scene in case you want to see the movie but like particularly one person was just like yeah let's go <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, and I hope they, and I'm glad that the movie was able to deliver that to them. So shout out to that person. That person had a good day. That person had a good day, but, and then the day after that, I saw what, I don't like to hyper, I don't want to be like, roll, run into Especially uh, because I'm supposed to watch this very movie I think you're talking about. Like, yeah, you know what I'm talking tomorrow. about. Tomorrow. Not to say. <laughs> um, it's pretty, it's an incredible movie. Um by the Daniels, uh, you might have heard of it. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's all I'll say about that movie. I've been getting in a lot of other just like discs and stuff that I'll eventually talk about in what will end up being a supersized episode of Dude Two's pickups. I anticipate this still. Yes, yes, <laughs> still. He's the only. He's the only one, folks. If you want to prove me wrong, <laughs> message us on Facebook, Twitter, Insta. <laughs> I'm just waiting. I just, I, I'm just waiting for that footage. I'm like, I'm just sitting here. Where is it? He's tapping his wrist as if he had a watch. <laughs> How do you know I don't? Have, I don't. <laughs> I, I can see you. They can. I'm trying to be the arbiter of truth here. Oh my gosh. Um, Listen, I'm just, I'm just waiting. Whatever, whatever it's available. It's okay. It's okay. Keep waiting. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, enough about myself. Um, how are you today? Uh, I'm tired a little bit. Um, I was working a double last night because, I mean, 
obviously at my work, you know, because I work at a movie theater, we tend to extend our hours a bit when bigger movies come out. And this past weekend, um, they they were anticipating because obviously in the past the other movies did really well. They were anticipating Fantastic Beasts three or whatever the Dumbledore secret stuff, whatever it's called. Uh, <laughs> um, it's uh, they were anticipating it to do really well and. Obviously, that movie has a lot of baggage. I'm not going into it because it's a whole thing with a bunch of different people that have done terrible things or allegedly did terrible things or have just terrible ideas, whatever. But um, it did it like honestly, Sonic is still like doing really well. Families are still coming in. People are still coming in to see it. I still see little kids dressed up in their Sonic onesies. And that brings me back to my childhood when I dressed up as Sonic on the daily you can ask my parents, they're like, oh yeah, we have pictures, plenty, of him in his Sonic costume, just running around, like, gotta go fast. Um, <coughs> but, um, but yeah, Fantastic Beast didn't do anything. Like, like it, I think I think it had, like, an initial busyness, but no, so I'm a little bit tired, because I was working all day yesterday, but um, other than that, today's my mom's birthday. Yeah! Happy birthday. And so right now she's out and about. She's going out to to eat, and obviously I'm not comfortable with that, so I'm home. But after we record this, I'm going to go and get her cake that I paid for. Is a bunt cake from a place called Nothing Bunt Cakes. You know, play on words. And then I'll bring that back, and we'll have we'll celebrate. We'll eat dinner, and we'll have a good time, and just you know celebrate, mom. Happy birthday, mom. Um, similar to you, I've also picked up a bunch of movies. Um, just, I've, I've gone just sort of crazy buying movies. Yeah. Like it, like it, it, it comes in spurts. I don't know if that's the same with you, but, um, I keep watching you eat that sandwich and I'm like, I feel, I feel seen. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm like, I'll look off and then I'll just in my peripheral see you go, Harm. <laughs> it's it's wonderful mm-hmm. um but uh i like it comes in it comes in waves like i'll get like maybe one or two typically but then like sometimes i just feel crazy and i'll just buy like five or six mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just like i don't know if i can afford all this but i'm i'm happy to have it all mm-hmm. <laughs> um and as far as like newer movies i did um i finally watched the movie x you know what that is? Mm-hmm. Do you hear about that? I did. If if, if you don't know, it's like it's uh, from Ty West, who's done a few like uh, smaller horror movies that did really that did really well, more or less. And he's sort of like he's sort of part of like that like kind of small knit community of horror directors that hang out. It seems like like he's friends with Adam Wingard, mm. and I think he was in um he like he he played one of the family members in Your Next. Okay, in Adam Wingard's movie. Um, but, uh, he directed this movie called X that, uh, I, it just came out to rent and I wanted to watch it. And what was weird about it is that like, obviously it presents itself as this kind of like slasher sort of grindhouse seventies movie where like the, this, this film crew making like a, a, it, like, uh, what do they call it? Like, a like, a a, a smart, dirty movie or like, like, a you know, you know, not like a typical like porno, but like like a normal movie that happens to also be dirty, right? I guess um, an elevated dirty movie. I guess you could call it elevated dirty movie. <laughs> 
elevated dirty movie because the plot matters as well this time um and so they go to this farm and there's this like old couple and they're very creepy <laughs> like and it's like younger people in in old in old makeup oh so so it almost makes it that much kind of like scarier in a way especially given like the nature and like the the style and and whatnot of the movie yeah but the the, the crazy thing is that um, the movie itself sort of feels elevated because it talks a lot about getting older. And and you realize that these old people are kind of like ageist and are and hate all these young people for making for doing what they just they do, just living their lives the way they want to live it. Mm-hmm. Because they're like they feel like they're like anything that they that they got growing up was taken away from them. And so they kinda of lament on that a little bit while also just trying to rekindle like whatever love physical love but like whatever love that they had and kind of bring it back even though they're like probably at least from what i can recollect the characters are probably like in their 70s or 80s wow. so they're like so they're just trying and so i'm like did did ty west make a, a grindhouse slasher movie um through the filter of nancy myers i'm <laughs> 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 uh, like you know what respect Oh my god, that's amazing. So like so it talks a little bit about that, but obviously like if you're someone like like me and maybe a few other people in my age range that are sort of dealing with the anxiety of getting older, um maybe it's not the best time to watch it because there's definitely points I'm watching and I'm like, "Oh no, I'm going to die soon." <laughs> so maybe that might be not the best time to watch it, but it is a, it is a pretty solid movie for mm-hmm. Um, it's got great performances, and they actually shot a prequel while they were filming the movie. Like they did it like simultaneously, which is insane. And so I'm curious to see how that plays out whenever that comes out. Mm. Um, and I guess the, they put a trailer in the after credits, but I never, I, I never got it in the digital version. Oh, so I was kind of bummed. I was like, I wanted to see that. Is it also in theaters as well? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I watched that. That was pretty good. But um, that's about it for me. But moving on from that, um, this was so we we have a lot of last minute ideas on the show. It's, this isn't new for us, you know, because like we have a set in stone schedule, but it, it's not entirely set in stone because every now and then one of us will be like, I have an idea. I have an idea for an episode. Like, I feel like like, for example, Joey's talking about everything everywhere all at once. And he has a double feature idea for that movie and so he's been anxiously like peer pressuring me to go see it and then (laughs) so we can and i imagine once that happens we might have to do that episode idea that he has sooner rather than later and i'm totally okay with that Mm -hmm. but um it just it's just stuff that happens and it makes the show more kind of fun and spontaneous and approaching something a little bit differently and maybe just being more excited about something and with this episode i i i basically messaged joey and i said what if we did um, this pairing based on works from a particular author who never wanted his his work turned into film. Richard, I thought we were doing the, the Nancy Myers episode. No, that's later. Okay, that's that's yeah, um, that's going to be uh, X, and um, it's complicated. <laughs> it's going to be called X complicated. <laughs> <laughs> it's complicated is one of my mom's favorite uh, favorite films. <laughs> Shout out to Patty. Shout out to Pat. That is, if you want to know quintessential Patty DeAngelis cinema, <laughs> it's complicated. Starring, who isn't it? Um, um, Meryl Streep and Alec Baldwin and Steve Martin and Steve. Oh my god, I forgot Steve Martin it's, was in that. <laughs> and there's actually parts of that I think are really funny. 
Uh, but, but wow, I did not think we were going to talk about. No, it's complicated. We're not doing. Our thoughts are not. Well, actually, it's actually funny because our thoughts on these movies, in a way, can be described as the title of that movie. It's complicated. <laughs> That's not. It all works out in the end. Yeah. Um. So specifically, though, uh, we're talking about films based on the work of Alan Moore, who is. You know, you, if you've never heard of that name, he's one of the biggest one of the biggest names as far as the evolution of the medium of comics. You know, he came in in the sort of mid '80s and wrote all these books. Like, you know, obviously the two that our films are based on, as well as books like The Killing Joke and a few other different things that sort of showed what you can do with the comics medium and 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 in maybe some ways sort of wrongly influenced comics, but also um in a in a in a in a big way rightly influenced comics that you know you can do anything with this medium and do some amazing beautiful wonderful crazy things and and he treated it as such as just a medium um and to this day people credit his work as influence on so many different things like we think of like we did an episode on Logan and the Batman i feel like if it wasn't for Alan Moore in in many respects we wouldn't have had something like Logan i agree i agree 110% where you can have a story of a of a superhero character, but treated in in that sort of fashion, and so he's he's a massive name along with like obviously a million other people from that time period, and um, his uh, this first film is based off of one of his earlier works, and uh, what what film is that, Mister D, Mister D. <laughs> That uh, Richard would be the the 2005 James McTeague, right? James McTeague, James James McTeague directed movie V for Vendetta, which is funny because like I think like I don't know if you know I don't know if you heard about this, but like I think V for Vendetta is among that list of movies where people speculate whether or not the director actually directed the movie. I I have that feeling as well watching this because yeah. Like, how many because uh, we were talking about the career of said james mcteague it almost like not to, no disrespect to him but it sounds like one of those like fake writer names <laughs> like he's not a real person but he's a real dude oddly enough that's interesting i mean i don't want to dis i don't want to discredit him because like yeah listen, yeah his, no his, no no his name's on the movie but it's just <laughs> i don't know <laughs> it's just it's kind of it's kind of like and like this i guess the story goes because obviously we're talking about um james mcteague works very closely with the wachowskis who we talked about on the show and um they uh they've had him on as like a second unit director on almost everything they've done i think i think he was even a second unit director for lana on um uh resurrections mm. that which i didn't know or maybe he was a producer i don't know but i know he was involved because i was watching special features and at one point he shows up i'm like oh hey i know him <laughs> yeah <laughs> that guy but um I guess because like he's worked second unit, but like I guess um, as the story goes, when they would tell the story on the the V for Vendetta special features, um, Lana and Lily had already started working on a screen adaptation of uh, V for Vendetta for for film, and they presented to presented it to him as a gift for his birthday and said, "We want you to direct this or something." Oh wow! Yeah, like I think that was the story that they told, and I was like, "That's how about that for a gift." Like, here's the script that we were working on. We want you to make it. Here's a lot of work you're suddenly going to have to do now. 
it's gonna be a good time (laughs) but yes v for vendetta um what is this movie about joey um what's 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 the plot line 1984 but there's like an errol flynn type (laughs) running around (laughs) an errol flynn type mixed with the phantom of the opera basically yeah i think that's a lot of the appeal for me honestly but basically like I felt like I like a little bit that was sort of a draw in a weird way for you cuz like I know you're a big Phantom guy especially like the Lon Chaney one. Yeah, so basically this takes place in uh England, 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 London, Lon- London town, you know. Uh you know, the place Paddington came to. Uh yes. <laughs> this is clearly a world without Paddington because it's fallen to <laughs> shit. They have a dictator um, named Adam Sutler, played by John Hurt, which is a reference to 1984 you mentioned. Yes. Uh, he was the main character in the original film. Yeah, it, and it's interesting you say that because our orig- one of our, I feel like one of our earliest double feature ideas was to pair this with 1984. And mm-hmm. after, re- after watching the, because ni- ni- I had never seen the 1984 movie with John Hurt, which I thought it was a fine enough movie, but I wasn't like crazy about it. I guess so. Wait, you said you never seen it. I I don't think I had ever seen it. I don't think I'd ever seen that version. I'd seen actually I'd seen like bits and pieces of it because I saw it in high school. But okay, but like I had and I really liked the book. But seeing like seeing it again, I'm like I wasn't as crazy about it when I rewatched it. Right. But I'm glad we did this pairing. But yeah, it's very much if you know 1984. It's such a dystopian society. There's there's double think. Or that where like the government and the media manipulate things. So like if something goes wrong, like when the buildings explode in the be- like in the beginning, they're like, oh, we set up fireworks to <laughs> to wish <a> happy <laughs> happy times. Woohoo! <laughs> like it was a good time. We were partying. There we're, was music. We're, we're it really, was planned. We're really behind the scenes. Uh, <laughs> John Hurt's like, we need to tell them why they need us. I am yelling really loudly. You must be doing your jobs. I'll, and all I could notice too after, while he was screaming is just his pupils were just huge. I just like, imagine they just dilated them right before they shot. He's like, right, "Are you ready? Are you ready? Why they need us?" <laughs> <laughs> it, he just starts like going like heavy metal with it, like, "Why they need us? <laughs> Cause I'll make someone else do it anyway." Uh, <laughs> oh my god but, but so yes. everything is falling apart and um the story the main character uh we have evie evie hammond evie hammond played uh, by natalie portman natalie portman um you know her parents were were you know uh against the system she's an orphan she lost her brother like she's by herself in, in in this crazy world and one night she's just trying she's just trying and one night one event leads to another and she is saved by the mysterious the somewhat sexy and the uh the blade carrying uh vigilante terrorist v shakespearean blade wielding <laughs> sexy terrorist yes uh, v. <laughs> v uh brilliantly portrayed uh, by Hugo Weaving here. Which, part of the reason this double feature came about is because I was watching a video about that very casting because initially 
I didn't rem- I, I, I didn't oh, I knew about this but I don't know if I remembered it so it's just like wait what but um it's like you know, I don't know if that ever happens with you like you like you know something but then like so much time has passed that you just don't even you, think about it anymore you, you re- relearn it yes you relearn it yeah 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 yes um but like uh turns out Hugo Weaving was not initially cast to play V in the film and they got James Purefoy initially mm mm-hmm. mhm who um, I think most people might recognize. At least I know the first place I recognized him is um, in A Knight's Tale. Uh, he was the like he was sort of the opposite version of Heath Ledger's character. Like Heath Ledger's character was a peasant who wanted to joust and be a knight, and so kind of pretended to be uh, someone of nobility so he can joust. Um, whereas um, James Purefoy's character was a prince who wanted to joust, but because he's royalty and, you know, he's got to be protected at all times, you know, they wouldn't allow him to, to joust because he'll get hurt and possibly die. And mm-hmm. that's a whole thing. So he would pretend he was someone else so he could joust. Mm-hmm. So that's like, like two sides of the same coin in a weird way. And so I recognize him as that character, but he, he initially um, was playing the role of V and I guess um, there are moments in the film where it's still him in the V outfit. Oh, wow. With Hugo Weaving um, doing ADR um, and just doing voiceover uh, for V, which I, I mean I can't confirm or deny, but if that is true, that's inter- that's that's pretty wild to think that. But I mean, obviously James Purefoy never got credited or anything, but he got fired from the movie, so I guess he doesn't need to be. But mm-hmm. I guess there were some creative differences, or maybe they just didn't care for him as much, or like they didn't think the performance was working, so they're like, we're gonna get someone else. So they called Hugo Hugo Weaving, and he finished the movie. Yeah. And he's very good in the movie. And that's not to say James Purefoy wouldn't have been good. I mean, I, I think James Purefoy is a great actor, but I just you know, Hugo Weaving was very good as V. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those um one of those performances um that it especially I mean, obviously there's a lot of like acting going on because he his entire face is covered up, so it's a lot of like body mm-hmm. language stuff, but like the power of voice in in a film, like voiceover. And that's why, like, a lot of people have a problem, like, celebrity voice voice acting, because sometimes it can be a little, like, stilted. They're always cast for who they are more than what they can do. And yet, it's always nice when they actually do stuff, and it's like, what? Mm -hmm. But, yeah. No, I get what you mean. Um, But there basically are two main characters in this this film. But we also have uh, Chief Inspector Finch as another character he's sort of like the third lead of the movie i would say yeah he's the detective character and he's sort of like like he's one of the like what like four or five sort of main dudes that 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 work almost right directly under um uh adams under sutler and with like the whole norse fire because they don't mention in the movie but in the comic it's called the norse fire they mention it like briefly every okay. now and then, but it's called like the Norse fire. It's like the not like Norse Norse fire is Nazi, but um, um, he's one of those people, and obviously he works with the police department. And that's sort of where his point of view is coming in. But he's he's getting to a point where he's like sort of reevaluating his life and reevaluating his uh working in this government system and mm-hmm. and and obviously he wants the truth and in you know he's like he almost seems tired when you like it seems like every other detective he's like he's tired he's done you know he just doesn't want to work under Sutler anymore and 
yeah. V this whole V stuff comes along and that's when he's like, I'm gonna learn the truth. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So a lot of there's a lot of the story focused on him because there's like, you know, you got Evie's stuff. Obviously she's the main thing going on, but he's investigating a lot of the stuff, sort of trying to follow, connect the dots. Um mm-hmm. connect the dots with what's going on with what's v. what's the name of the actor that plays uh Finch? Uh Steven Ray. I know him from the crying game. Yeah. Obviously there's there's so much I mean because the original book, like Alan Moore, I think was writing that book mainly from position because that was around when Margaret Thatcher, I think, was um, he was he, yeah he wrote it as a response to the Margaret Thatcher um, administration, you know, when she was prime minister, and like that was one of his biggest um, things with the book, especially being turned into the film, is that the that the book was very British. And it was very much a response to the Margaret Thatcher administration, but also um, the film, which is an American film, even though it's set in England. Um, it's like Harry Potter, you know, like they're British, but it's actually American films. Mm-hmm. Uh, was very much in response to a very American event, though obviously the whole world felt it, but like very much America was 9 11. And that's sort of where he had most of his, like, he had a lot of disconnect, but that was sort of where he had most of his disconnect. And with with this one, I mean, I remember, I still remember I was telling you when we were watching it, um, um, they were doing, I think it was Linda Ellerby on, like, Nick News, mm-hmm. which, you know, it's like, like, it was just kind of a cool thing they did in, in like, the, the 90s and early 2000s where Linda Ellerby would sit down with all these kids and, like, young 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 people and talk about actual like stuff going on in the world and their perspective on it and what they can glean like actually like talking to them about this stuff which mm-hmm. which is cool it's cool like you know to get you know that sort of perspective um and this this the there was sort of a big sort of controversy with this because they're like it's a superhero movie where the superhero is a terrorist mm-hmm. and terrorist was is like a it was like a button like a hot button word in the early 2000s because of 9-11 yeah and so the idea of doing a story like this after that event was, and how that event shaped how this version of that story was going to happen is, was pretty crazy. It's it just that there's so many, like I said, like with the, with like the news programs, like how heavily censored things have to be, but also like the propaganda that's, that's involved. Like with, I think about the scenes with Prothero just going on and on. Who is, I, I, I said is basically that, uh, Tucker Carlson <laughs> of this movie. There's that. I, I was thinking about one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie is where uh, Stephen Fry show like have recorded a different show, and it, the whole show yes. was just like kicking the shit out of uh, Sutler. <laughs> they do the, they do the Benny Hill thing. Yes, the ben, the yak, yakety sacks and uh, just like like the te- like V was like almost like a Looney Tunes character. <laughs> I like the grout like the he did like a groucher thing. <laughs> yeah, with like the with the cigar at the end. Oh, it, that was that was fun. It, it just you know one of my favorite like little moments in that whole scene was um, when uh, he brings out a, a glass of milk and he's like. And the the TV settler, even though it was uh, John Hurt playing uh, himself and exaggerate, which was funny, mm-hmm. but um, uh, he brings out a glass of milk and he's like, "Warm milk, there's nothing better." Obviously, it's cutting to all these different people who are watching the pro- the the broadcast, and it cuts to a hand holding a glass of milk, and you know, 
immediately after who's watching it. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, oh boy. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it, it's kind of funny too, because when you think about the response that the government gives to like, say like a bombing and like somebody making fun of Sutler uh, in that way gets like almost an equal amount of like, we have to do something about this. Listen, what are, did what did I compare? Do you remember what I compared this to when mm. we were watching that scene? I forget. Um, this this is the uh, the more ex- this is the extreme version of the slap. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> oh the 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 slap. Uh, but <laughs> it rears its ugly head. Once but it just again. shows you how fragile fascism is, where it's just like it has to be taken super seriously, and any sort of um, any sort of joke about it about that administration is going to rustle their jimmies. Also, not to insinuate that Will Smith is a fascist. No. <laughs> I don't I don't want to put that out in the ether at all. No. Just, it's 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 they're very two very different it's just the similarity of someone not taking the joke. Okay. Uh, yeah, just want uh, to put that out. There that, that's a whole other oh my god. Um <laughs> No, but I also one of the other things I really like too is now, we're going to talk about, like, nostalgia and stuff with the second film that we're talking mm-hmm. about. But I think what this movie does, it shows that, like, how important our culture and our pop culture is to us. I think about the Shadow Gallery, which, folks, that is, like, the coolest name for a lair <laughs> ever. Like, Fortress of Solitude, Fortress of Solitude, psh, like, Bat Cave, what? What are you, five? Shadow Gallery. <laughs> Classy shit. But anyway, anyway, um, <laughs> but you know, he's got all these like great works of art. He's got like a Don Quixote statue, you know, he's got these different movie posters. Um, he's got a jukebox. He's got a jukebox. He watches, uh, the, the Robert Donnett, uh, version of the Count of, uh, Monte Cristo, which I was surprised to learn you've never seen. I wanted to watch it before recording this, but I haven't. It's definitely something I've wanted to watch for a long time, but that like with, with V, like, preserving the culture is so important you know and i Mm -hmm. I think one of my favorite lines it's less like she's like oh you you stole this stuff he's like you can't steal from a censor i just i like reclaimed it you know and which is it's so that's such a great moment i also think about uh stephen fry's basement where he has the quran and Mm -hmm. i was thinking about 2000 think about 2005 in a mainstream movie where one of your characters is like hey i got the quran in here and it's a beautiful piece of art it's insane. Like, 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 I feel like that moment maybe almost mostly could have been like, like, we need this, especially given what we're sort of contextualizing this with. Right. Um, so I feel like that was, was put there, not entirely for that purpose, but it felt like maybe it was there a little bit for that. But it's insane to think about. Cause I, when you mention that, I'm like, yeah. Cause I, I, I almost, if I was, if there was like a studio executive, I could imagine one of their notes would be, take this out. Because, like, are you, are you like, now listen, I'm not saying they're, they're probably, they, their mentality be like, I'm not saying these people are bad, but you're saying the Quran is good. Do you know how this is going to play with our audience? Like, what the, <laughs> f- what are you thinking? <laughs> they just got Lana and Lily going, we don't care. We, we, we <laughs> exist to make them mad. <laughs> this, this is our whole shtick. This is okay. all, this is all we do. Um, you know, so I, I just love, and it comes into play too with, um, was the actress, the actress Valerie. Was that the like the that he talks about? I forgot the name. Oh yeah, Valerie, his his um, his uh, his his cell neighbor, his cell when, neighbor, when, 
like so the the whole the whole backstory with that is um as the movie progresses we learn that v um obviously because you know v for vendetta aka revenge um a lot of what v is doing is trying to get revenge on the people that hurt him but not just hurt him but more specifically hurt other people mm-hmm. that's the big thing i think that you that we need that needs to be noted with this is that um V's motivation for why he does what he does is not for himself. It's not selfish because he was in a cell. We don't see this, but we see it sort of recreated for Evie in a, in a whole other scene. Redramatized basically. Yeah. Um, V obviously is going through a lot of stuff and, you know, to the point where like his entire body is burned. He's got scars, but you know, we see like vague hints of it when his gloves are off or anything, but we never see it in full ever because his mask is always on. But, um, which, you know, in today's age, thanks for having your mask on, V. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, at one point he received a note from someone in the, in the, in the cell uh, next to his, and it was this entire life story, this beautiful, tragic life story from this woman named Valerie, who was talking about her experience of coming out and, you know, realizing she was a lesbian and, having her whole world at least at the beginning like it's sort of bookend by tragedy and then that one moment in between when she finally like she's an actor um she was in a movie called the salt flats which is reference it's from the book as well which is referenced in the film um she she meets someone she falls in love and then of course um norse fire starts up and sutler comes into power and she's taken away from the love of her life and she's brought to lark hill which is the location that v was at and she is tested on, she's drugged, she is tortured, beaten, and eventually killed and thrown into a ditch. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And so while she was in Lark Hill, she, wrote, she writes this whole note and she gives it to V. And that becomes his motivation for why he does what he does. Like, he's never met Valerie, Valerie's never met him, but they have this shared unfortunate experience of where they're at in their lives and that becomes the driving force for like, I don't want this to happen to anyone ever again. And I just love like the little shrine that she has with all the Scarlet Carsons, mm-hmm. Scarlet Car- which she gives out to all of the people who were heavily involved in Lark Hill uh, throughout the movie. So like you see like a Scarlet Carson, like resting on their chest after he's murdered him. But again, it's just, I think that idea, cause sometimes there's some, like, some things like when you watch like ready player one or, you know, even some, in some ways our next film uh, where like, <laughs> Hey, it's okay that you like stuff. It's great that you like stuff because we want you to buy it. <laughs> this and this movie is like, listen, like the art, the stuff that we consume, the movies that we watch. You know, it, it can be almost like a liberating, like a liberating force um, from tyranny. You know, it's it, it's so. I just think it's so beautiful, honestly. Like, like it's a, it's a, that idea is almost manifested in you know V watching Count of Monte Cristo and he's pretending to fence a suit of armor. He's just a fanboy. He's just fanning out. He's having a good time. And then like the EV sees him and he's like, oh, "I'm so sorry." <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, "No, it's cool." You know. <laughs> there's also, I mean, there's some action scenes in this, but there's not as many as I remember uh, as I remembered it being. Because obviously that was the big thing, because obviously the Wachowskis are involved, and you think, oh boy, Matrix stuff, let's go. And it's like, it's there! Like, there's some great moments of action, like, it's sort of, but again, it's kind of bookended. It's, yeah, it's really bookended, and it's really, I just, like, I love, like, 
I, I just love V in general. It's one of my favorite characters. It's probably my favorite performance from Hugo Weaving, and I guess also James Purefoy to a lesser extent. <laughs> but I get, um, I get again, we'll, no disrespect. We'll just we'll give him credit. <laughs> um, but like, I I think I just there's so much about it, like because it's not just a just an action movie, and I one of my favorite things is like where he dances with Evie at the end it's just like mm-hmm. is it really a revel is it a revolution worth fighting for if you can't dance like you gotta you gotta dance a little bit you gotta dance it's such a nice uh nice little moment and then of course um like the end action scene where he's fighting off all those dudes and just has like the idea like after he just been shot mm-hmm. a million uh, that I, I used to watch that scene on repeat yeah that scene is so good i and then just the line i idea like there's a whole thing he says before I, ideas are bulletproof which is from the book. Yes, but which is cool. But he del- and the way he delivers it is is so good. I think I think the line is beneath this mask there's more than flesh. Beneath this mask there's an idea, Mister Creedy, and ideas are bulletproof. And then he breaks his neck. Which also it it continues with the idea. It kind of it would have been a good pair in nineteen eighty four because like there's that whole idea of like don't give up, you know, or mm-hmm. and if because if you do give up they've won. And it, this is a dysto- it's one of those dystopian movies. Where, because sometimes, like, with the stuff of, like, George Orwell, the inspirational part of it is not within the text itself. The inspirational part of it is that the text exists as a warning to say, don't let this happen, you know? Yeah. But it is nice to sometimes see, like, a, like this, where there is an uplift, kind of an uplifting ending. There is, like, there is some hope. The people do, does that, does that mean things are going to go right afterwards? I, I don't know. <laughs> we don't know. It's just, at least... All these people, especially because again, it's it's a it's a dictatorship, and so all these you know marginalized people are being pushed down. They're being, you know, told that they don't matter as much. It's and they're like, no, we rise up. Like you know, going back to Stephen Fry's character, you know, it's revealed later that he's actually gay, mm-hmm. and and like, you know periodically because initially we meet him and we think oh maybe he because like he has a reputation in the office of being potentially like one of those talk show hosts or producers that might take young girls home and and you know do some things um which is not it's not savory um and a little relevant unfortunately um well it's you know but um it's what we learn is that you know he never actually was that person and he had to hide who he was because, uh, if especially because if he were to tell the world, "Hey, I'm I'm gay," uh, he'd be dead. And so, like when you when we see the Quran, we also see like um, erotic photographs of like men in his like man cave, I guess you could say, or his mm-hmm. like den, if you will, his secret his secret lair. And so, like he's like he's like looking at Evie, like listen. If they find you here, you're the least of my worries. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, after the, he aired that episode, they 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 found they they went to his house. Mm-hmm. They found all that stuff, and then he died. And it was it's, it's incredibly tragic. Yeah, I'm. I did want to. We have not really talked too much about Natalie Portman in this movie. No, but you know what? Save best for last. Like. Listen, because this was because two thousand five was also the year Revenge of the Sith came out. Was it two thousand five? Yeah, I thought it was two thousand three. I'm losing my mind. Because two thousand three <laughs> was, was Attack of the Clones. 
They all came okay. out like three all right. years that makes apart. Sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because okay. I remember because 1999 was Phantom Menace, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but this was right after, and those movies, you know, they weren't the best. I mean, received movies, obviously, by the fan community, you know. And Natalie Portman doing those movies as a young actress, um, you know, it's kind of it's kind of rough, I would imagine, because there's probably a lot of people going like, oh, "This is this movie's stupid," blah blah blah. And I feel like, in a sense, this feels like, I and mean, she's done other movies before this, and right, you know, right. But like, as an older person, like doing a movie like this was such a great, I feel like such a great career move for her. And she's so good. Like, cause you believe that she's this like timid, like shy person at first. And she, and she becomes like this becomes revolutionary. Mm. And cause like, like we talked a little bit, like she has a whole backstory um, to get more specific with it. Like her backstory is that her parents were protesters and you know, they pushed against the the Sutler, like, Norse Fire Regimen, more specifically because, um, and this is the part that feels incredibly relevant right now, um, there were some massive um, epidemic situations where a virus spread, and it killed, like, specifically at locations, um, uh, one place was called Three Waters, and, um, I th- uh, which was a, a water treatment plant, and then there was the school the i forget what it was called st mary is that st mary's st mary's st mary's yeah st mary's which was a, a kid's school and all these kids died and it racked up like eighty thousand plus deaths because of these viruses and um conveniently when sutler came into power um drugs were made to counteract the effects of the virus um one of the the children that died during st mary's was evie's brother and her parents became politically active and wanting to work against the Norse Fire Regiment, and they and in the process of that, you know, it, it it they got killed, and so Evie lost her brother. Evie lost her parents, so she's by herself, and she's just trying to live. And she works as an assistant at the the BTN, which is the sort of uh, government controlled news program, right? Where like obviously not every story they're telling is in any way true if not any of them. And uh, that's when she interacts with V and V sort of brings, brings out that like, you need to fight, like brings out the fighter in her a little bit, especially during that whole sequence where um, after uh, Stephen Fry's character gets kidnapped and black bagged as they are by yeah. uh, Creedy, who's sort of like the, like the, I guess you could say the Dick Cheney. He's like he's <laughs> like, like this. It feels like the secret police kind of guy. Yeah, like he almost feels like like the secondhand dude to to Sutler in a weird way. <laughs> now I'm just imagining uh, Christian Bale in this movie as Dick Cheney. <laughs> he's just like, well, I guess we're just gonna have to. <laughs> now we're gonna get uh, uh, S- Sam Rockwell as uh, Adam Sutler, <laughs> but he's playing W. <laughs> <laughs> it's like. <laughs> I want them to remember why they need us. <laughs> or, no, he just he just he just turns into the dude from Green Mile and starts eating a moon pie. You're like, no, stop. Oh no, <laughs> you're, you're you're just a screen. It's not going to do anything. Anyway, but, um, um, but yes, uh, Evie gets kidnapped and um, in that process, but she's actually kidnapped by V. 
unbeknownst to her. But what's interesting is like if you look at the guy that kidnaps her, like if you watch that scene, you actually look in his mask, you can actually see scarring. Like red reddish sort of scarred, like burned skin, which is kinda like it's a nice fact, like a little hint, like maybe something's something's up once you know. And it rewards you for rewatch viewings, you know. Exactly, yeah, which is cool. And so basically V recreates his experience at Lark Hill for Evie. Mm-hmm. Which is pretty messed up at first, but it it ignites something in her. Yeah. And she's sort of um, reborn and, and quote unquote baptized when she goes and she says God is in the rain. And she has that whole like Shawshank Redemption moment. Yes. And um, she shaves her head and she's just a completely different person to the point where like she mentions at one point that she went to a uh, grocery store and saw an old friend of hers who had no clue it was her. Yeah. It almost feels like she once, cause V dies at the end of the movie, spoiler alert. Um, and, uh, V, Evie almost becomes like his replacement. Yeah. And I feel like, and like if that's acknowledged when she looks at, uh, detective Finch and is like, um, or Chief Inspector Finch, and is like, do you like music? <laughs> yeah. Which is something V asked Evie um, uh, when uh, he initially had her with him at, towards the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. But she goes through a whole a whole arc yeah. from this, like like you are saying, like this like timid, sort of scared, like just trying to get by sort of person to being this, this fighter that she becomes later. Yeah. I just wanted to make note of that too, especially because we've talked about her in Black Swan, and she's been great in, in other things, um, but I it's, know it's hard. It's it's hard to to watch a movie with her in it and not and not enjoy what she's doing. Yeah, you know what I mean. She's very good at what she does. Mm-hmm. And I feel like sometimes she doesn't get that credit. So I just wanted to, you know, uh, give her give her a shout out. Um, you know, I think this is a great movie, um, but I know there's that the the Alan Moore issue where. He's just like, listen, <laughs> listen, Ugh. but you know, I almost want to save that a bit for later just cause that's I think fine. that's an all encompassing thing. Yes. Yeah. Both of these things, but that'll be a hint for later, but yeah, yeah. You're gonna say, sorry. But I was just gonna say like, I think the thing that you pointed this out and I, I, I didn't even think of it, but I, I think I agree a lot is that this movie feels pretty underrated. Like, you don't hear it talked about enough. Like, people... Like, it has a pretty decent score in, like, Letterbox, which, not that that's the mm-hmm. be-all, end-all arbiter of, like, a good movie, you know? <laughs> but it's... I, I think it's an incredible, like... Because people always talk about, with like, like you know, uh, the comic book genre. Like, I, obviously, this is not a superhero movie, so to speak, but, like, it just feels like the same. It's got the same trappings. And I'm like, this is one of the most unique... Like, I know it's based on, like, based on a very famous graphic novel, but, like... There's so many things that just like just seem so crazy to put into a movie, which we're also going to talk about with this, the next one as well. Yeah. But like, I just think it's really unique for what it is. Um, and I just want to say thank you to everybody involved making this movie. Yeah, because like it's who because like someone like you know Alan Moore and, and David Lloyd uh, when they were making the comic sat down and said, "What if we did a, a superhero book, but the superhero was a quote unquote terrorist fighting a fascist regiment?" Yeah. Like, I mean, like, you think of, like, you know, like, Captain America when he fought the Nazis, sure, but, like, in this instance, it's, like, it's 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 very different. Like, I think that was the driving force for me wanting to watch it. It was, like, that's such an interesting concept. You know what I mean? Like, you don't see that. No, plus, he's got, like, the older trappings of, like, a more pulpy, like, 
superhero. Like I think about, I think about like Zorro. Honestly, when I when I when I watch him, he's got all black. He's got like a, mm-hmm. a weird mask kind of thing going on, a wig. Like there's the theatricality part of it. You know, that's so that's so much fun, and it's not just like, hey, it's a dude in tights. No, it's a guy who's got like <laughs> he should be like in like the theater or some shit. I don't know. It, it's just it's just kind of a it's kind of a fun performance and a fun character um, in that way. Mm-hmm. I agree, hundred and ten percent, and. It's, it's that nice sort of like, is he, like, he's a villain, mm-hmm. but is yeah. he, but not, you know what I mean? You know, and I think that's why, that's why I think I liked Hugo Weaving in this role so much is that he's so known for playing villains. Like, it just seems like in everything, he, like, he's Red, he's Red Skull, he's Agent Smith, he's, like, he's, there's so many different roles he's played, he's, he's a villain, but this is such a unique thing in that, you know, he's not, and... You know, he he gets to really like, even though his face is covered and everything, he really like gets to play something that's maybe kind of in that wheelhouse, but it's also totally different. I also think about him in like Lord of the Rings as like even there he's sort of antagonistic a little bit. Yeah, like like you know, because obviously he was on the side of the good guys, but like even then he's he's just like he's always yelling at Aragorn, just like (laughs) she belongs with her people, and he just looks like the like the angriest elf that ever was <laughs> like it, it's like every other elf looks like oh yes oh. and even when they're mad they're like ah, bah, bah. and he's just like ah, bah, 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 bah. throw the ring <laughs> 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 um, but i think we talked about this movie quite a bit uh great movie in my opinion great movie we're gonna take a brief intermission um when we come back um Want to go to New York City again? I don't know, man. I've heard there's some, like, tachyon interference over there. Nah, it should be fine. Whatever. Fine. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Two Dudes, One Double Feature. In our last segment, we talked about V for Vendetta. Uh, Now, we're moving on to a film based on a comic that, for the longest time, was considered unfilmable. There's been many attempts to make this into a movie. Um, Probably the most famous attempt was from Terry Gilliam. 
eventually it would land into the lap of um, at least one corner of the internet's favorite director of all time, and that will never change, Mr. Zack Snyder. That's right. Zack Snyder himself has made it onto our show. Wait, 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 wait. Are we are we talking about uh, the Owls of Ghoul? No, no, I'm sorry. There is an owl in here, though. I'm going to leave. Right. <laughs> no, Joey, Joey, <laughs> I swear we'll talk about it. The, okay, there's, 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 right. there's, there's uh, I think, Eli- no, uh, is Elijah Wood in that one? No, Um, it's the dude from that Beatles Across the Universe movie. And, oh. <laughs> and I think Hugo Weaving is in it. <laughs> Jeffrey Rush and they're owls and they talk and they wear armor. You know, Richard, this is no offense to you, but good thing they did not use you for the marketing of that movie. <laughs> it would just be me listing things about it. Like, there's people in it? No, but there's owls. <laughs> Alright, I don't even know. I checked out. <laughs> anyway, so yes, Zack Snyder himself has finally landed on this show. And uh, we were talking about his third, I believe his third um, directorial effort. And that film is, of course, the 2009, I believe? Yep. Right? The 2009 film Watchmen. You know, and you were saying this movie, this story being unfilmable. And I think there are some people who watch this movie and go, it's still unfilmable. Yes. (laughs) Well, the funny thing is, like... I, when I think of that statement, you know, I think that, like, well, I think the general thing I would argue when people hear that statement is because, you know, maybe, like, from a special effects standpoint or, like, Dr. Manhattan or just some of the elements, some of the stuff that they probably wouldn't be able to do. I think of that, and I think because, like, we've talked about before how some things are made for the mediums that they're in, and to translate them into another medium almost seems nonsensical. Like, it just doesn't make sense to make this thing into that medium. Like, mm-hmm. a lot of Broadway shows are like that. Like, Broadway is very much Broadway for many of their shows. There's definitely some great Broadway adaptations. There's, I'm not questioning that at all. But some shows just feel perfectly suited for the medium they're in. That one clear example I can think of is uh, Mel Brooks, The Producers, the musical version, which won more Tony Awards than any other show in the history of like Broadway shows, right? And then they turn it into a movie. With a lot of the same creative team as well, and who remembers that movie now, except for being kind of a weird curiosity? Yeah, it's and like they even tried to like block it like a stage show, oddly enough. Like you watch yeah. it, like it it feels like it's filmed like a like a high grade sitcom. You sent me a video, an interview that they had with um, Alan Moore, like a Q and A kind of thing, and he talks yeah. about like when you're adapting something, really the only reason why you're doing it is to make money. Like I know, and this is not to say that there aren't like really well done adaptations of things, but first and foremost, you want to make a buck out of something. Like if you're if you want if somebody makes the Les Misérables like big screen movie. They want to make money because they want to see the stars. The people know the musical. I mean, there's so many examples. I mean, obviously, all the zillions of comic book characters that are out, that are out there. You know, you want to remake it because the brand name is a solid one, and you're and you're almost just about guaranteed a buck out of it. Yeah, and there's it's not it's not in any way a wrong statement no. when he was making that statement, but like when he was writing Watchmen, and when you read Watchmen. Um, and you see the way that the the panels are structured, and the way David Lo- or not David Lloyd Parmy that was uh, before uh, Gibbons. Uh, Dave G- Dave Gibbons is another David, <laughs> but, yes. but Dave Gibbons. Um, 
um, who's an incredible artist on the note, and the art in Watchmen is outstanding on that Iconic. Um, but when Dave Gibbons and Alan Moore wrote the book, they deliberately structured it, um, tailored it to the medium of comics. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it was considered, even to this day, arguably, on film. Which is why when you watch the HBO show, which is incredible, I think, um, that's it's a sequel. Yeah. Like, it's a follow-up to Watchmen. It has nothing to do with the story, because Damon Lindelof said, I can't do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. I can't do that. I can I can recontextualize maybe some things, or I could um, maybe work with the Hooded Justice character, since there's a lot of ambiguity that goes with that character. But I cannot do Watchmen. The, I can't. What, my question is, was HBO looking to do an adaptation, a straight-up adaptation of Watchmen as a miniseries? I think there was some conversation potentially about that. I don't know the entire... Ba- I, I watched the bonus features like once, so I need to... Once. <laughs> There's no H in the once, anyway. <laughs> uh, once. I, I imagine that was probably one... Because Watchmen's one of those properties, especially from DC and Warner Brothers, that's been milked. Mm-hmm. to to the brim like i almost feel like there's just like what else could you squeeze out of it you know what i mean yeah like just the thing about this not not to harp on this too much but um you know after watchmen was a big success they reprinted that book a bunch of times they did they had several attempts to make a movie um they did a, a comic book series uh in like the 2010s like early 2010s i think called before watchmen which was um, with a bunch of iconic creators, including uh, one of our favorites, Darwin Cook, who probably did the best book in the whole bunch, but um, which is all about the Minutemen, which is probably the smartest thing you could have done as far as Watchmen books. Yeah, if you're going to do like a prequel or type, want some type of spinoff, that seems to make the most sense. Yeah, I would think. You know, but I, I think that's part of the thing. Like re- when I read Watchmen, like part of the cool thing about this is you're sort of just dropped into this story of these mm-hmm. superheroes and there's already like an implied history right yeah like, you know it's not like when you read like a superman or a batman story where you already know a lot like if you haven't been living under a rock you know what these guys are about you know some of the dynamics with these guys it's like this is the sto- this is the this is it this is this is the, this is the <laughs> template until they made all the spin-offs and things like that but like, yeah this is it you know um but the movie, I, I want to talk about, like, this was, for me, like, one of my most anticipated movies ever. Same. I was um, Same. I was very excited to see this movie. I watched that trailer with that uh, the Smashing Pumpkins song, like, 18 mm-hmm. zillion Dude, times. I, I, I just rewatched it before we recorded It's today. so good. It's like, so good. Like, my feelings on Zack Snyder aside, there are some great Zack Snyder trailers, like, the third Man of Steel trailer is a masterpiece, and I think that's what led to me like being so disappointed with that movie. But it's like, this is not it. what I got. <laughs> Some of the you know, there's a lot of great marketing materials for for those movies, but especially Watchmen. Like the marketing, it was, it felt like it was everywhere for like, especially for something that was like you know most maybe the average person had never heard of Watchmen before yeah. the release of this movie. And I remember reading, I I, I bought the graphic novel to check it out. I watched the motion comic. I bought the Tales from the Black Freighter Blu-ray. I bought the action figures. I had posters. This is some of the first posters I bought for myself were Watchmen mm-hmm. posters. And, and I remember that day, 369, uh, March 6, 2009. 
you know, I'm like, I was so excited. I think I was three, six, nine, damn, pretty fine. I was like, I was a freshman. I was a freshman in in high school. I was in my early years of college. (laughs) 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 Oh, Oh God. No, I remember. Yeah. 2009. I was all about this movie. I got all the toys. I did all of that too. I actually told you I took, cause like they're obviously like a lot of movies, they release clips of everything and i took the clips and the trailer and i mashed it all onto like a little disc that i just randomly had right i just i was like why do i have this disc i'm like you know what i'm gonna burn uh, a cd for myself and just constantly rewatch these clips over and over and over <laughs> mm-hmm. and um it was terrible quality but it was just fun to do yeah and um i remember when the soundtrack came out i listened to the soundtrack on my 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 shuffle all the time because i had i had i had an ipod shuffle so great such a great soundtrack and i'm also a huge my chemical romance fan and uh just a little brief history with them like you know obviously they were a massive part of that kind of 2000s like mid-2000s like quote-unquote emo movement even though i wouldn't i don't think i would ever categorize them as an emo band i don't think i think they even uh dissuaded themselves from being categorized like i think they said we're not emo fuck emo i think at one point oh interesting which is ironic given that Welcome to the Black Parade, which is probably the most iconic and probably one of the best songs they ever done, um, is like an anthem for the emo movement. <laughs> Oddly <laughs> enough, like it's the most like commonly used in memes and everything. But regardless of that, like they're also huge comic book fans. Like Gerard Way, who's the lead singer and sort of like the front man of the band, would go on and have this amazing career in comics lately. Um, creating one of my favorite books, probably my favorite comic of all time, The Umbrella Academy, which got turned into a great Netflix show um, starring Elliot Page. You should check it out. Um, And he dabbled in Doom Patrol, which some of that got adapted. Um, He actually created the character of Penny Parker, who is in Spider-Verse. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. I don't think I ever knew that. Wow. Yeah. And it's one of my. It's a great comic too. Like it's sort of like like an like an anime sort of vibe a little bit. So it's really mm-hmm. really good. Um, but uh, obviously, when you're a big band and you're a huge band, and they worked with Warner Brothers with their, I think it was Reprise um, uh, uh, Records. Um, they were constantly asked, like, can we, you know, do you want to do a song for this? Do you want to do a song for this? I think at one point. Um, one of their big songs, Helena from Three Cheers, was used at the credits for House of Wax remake mm. um, with um, Elijah Cuthbert and uh, uh, Paris Hilton, I think was in that one. Yeah. Um, and then, um, like, obviously through their careers, they were constantly asked to do all these different things. And the one time they were actually like, we actively want to do this movie was when they heard Zack Snyder was doing Watchmen. And so they did a cover of Desolation Row, the Bob Dylan song, and Zack Snyder even directed the music video that they did for mm. that song. And um, so they got to know Zack, and they they got they got to be involved in that. And and Gerard's actually interviewed whenever they talk about the the comic in the special features, and like how he relates to that. And so that was really cool. Um, and then just out of, just as a completely other as a complete side note, um, years later there would be badgered consistently by so many people to do a song for Twilight, and they would constantly be like, "No, no, not even like trying to diss Twilight. They just are not that kind of band, right? And they didn't want to be associated with that because that's they were kind of growing out of that that vibe a little bit. And so they wrote a song called Vampire Money about selling out, and mm-hmm. and it's sort of like it's sort of got like a kind of 
Iggy Pop meets uh, Ballroom Blitz sort of vibe. Right. Like, it even starts off with them going, are you ready? Uh-huh. Are you ready? Uh-huh. <laughs> so... Okay. It's a it's a it's a great song, but that was a huge thing for me because I would listen to that Desolation Row cover on repeat, and even now, like I listened to it recently, it's still a great song. Like I, I do like that cover quite a bit, and it's like that that punk vibe, which is really cool. Yeah, I was so into Watchmen, and I was so like I remember I saw it in theaters. Um, I read the graphic novel. I think I read it. I read, I think it was one of the few times I read the book first, but I think it was around the time I was I was just starting to get into comics. Mm-hmm. And I didn't. I don't feel like I retained the book as much as I as I as I hoped I would. Not that like in the sense that not that I hated it because I didn't. I loved it, but I I feel like there was just so much like thematically going on. I was not able to soak everything in. Like I didn't fully get it. And you know what actually helped me really get it was I want to give a shout out to the motion comic, which I think is incredible. And the guy who does the voices for he write, reads for everybody. He does a great job. I just wish there was like a an a, like a fe- a lady voice. Just to, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just to change up and give him a break. But absolutely, like if you if you want a way to like read Watchmen, that's literally reading Watchmen, but like not the movie. I would recommend the motion comic, a hundred and ten percent. You know, it, it's one of those things uh, where I, I almost kind of like I make memes based around it. Like when when Doctor Manhattan comes in, the way he says, "I'm disappointed, Vite, very disappointed." This is one of my favorite things <laughs> ever. Um, but yeah, I, I was like, me too. Like, I loved the aesthetic. It was like colorful, but like it was a colorful in a way that was like grimy. You know? It, yeah. It was. It looked like it looked like like a teenage mutant ninja turtles like ooze. Like, <laughs> and and, in, and the crazy part about that too is that because um, like when you think of the like the color palette for comics, they have like the. I think it's like blue, yellow, cyan, or whatever, like the sort of typical color palette for comics. I can't remember off the top of my head for some reason. But Dave Gibbons and Alan Moore deliberately used stuff that contrasted each other, like more like science fiction-y, like, like, like purples and, and greens and stuff that just didn't... And it almost created its own color palette. So like it's this Watchmen color palette that's actually been used a lot more often in comics later on. But like they deliberately went against using that sort of typical comic book color palette when making Watchmen just to give it that different feel. Right. Which is really cool. But the book, I know we, we both enjoy the book. The book has also been put, if you want, like, I know people talk about, like, thing, like comics and stuff getting credibility. I think one of the highest bits of credibility any sort of comic book has gotten was Watchmen was picked by Time Magazine as one of the 100 greatest English language novels, like, in the last, like, 100 years or so. Like, since 1920-something. And I think it was the first graphic novel to win a Hugo Award, or maybe the only. I might have been the. I don't. I don't know if anything's won afterwards, but I know it was like the first one to really like, like kind of break that mold. And it's not not to. I'm so sorry. No, no, it's okay. <laughs> but no, like, keep going. And it's one of those books that has transcended like the typical comic book medium. Like, like Watchmen guaranteed will be one of those books that you can pick up anywhere at like a bookstore without even like if you go to a college bookstore, which is where I got one of my first copies of the book. You can go to a college bookstore with no graphic novel section whatsoever and still be able to get Watchmen because they they categorize Watchmen. Not that every other graphic novel shouldn't be categorized as this, as they very much should, but it's one of those few graphic novels that you can find in any section of like a library or a book because they categorize it amongst other books. Like they, so they think it's 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 prestigious enough to be amongst the the others, I guess, outside of 
that world. It's a great piece of literature. Yes. It really is just like the way the story is told. Um, obviously, uh, Dave Gibbons, beautiful work in that book. Beautiful like artwork. images, images from that book are like ingrained in my, even though I haven't read the book in a very long time, but I rem- I, I will never forget that book. Um, mm-hmm. but let's talk about the movie because, um, yeah. you know, we, I'm just going to say up front, we don't hate this movie. No, I think it's probably one of, it's one of the better movies Zack Snyder's ever done. I think for me, this and the Snyder Cut are my two favorite Zack Snyder movies. And I just want to give Zack Snyder a little credit here for a second, which is not something I always do. (laughs) Think about his career. Let's think about the movies that he's directed and the approach that he's taken. Dawn of the Dead. Man of Steel. But Dawn of the Dead, a remake of a a beloved zombie film. Mm -hmm. What? Um, Sucker Punch, uh, one of those movies that's consistently like one of the most misunderstood movies of all time, I guess for a lot of, for a lot of people. Um, the Owls, of, he decides to do an animated movie, and it's the freaking Owls of Gahul. What is this? What is this? Okay, his um, he decides to adapt Three Hundred. You know, mm. adapts Three Hundred, and he adapts Watchmen, which is something that has been deemed unfilmable. Okay. Like this can't... dude, this this dude swings hard. He swings. Does he miss? Yeah, I think so. But yeah, listen, like, and I think about his approach to Superman, and that he had to he had to revigorate DC. Did I think he did a great job? Well, that's no, not my opinion. But yeah, you can't you can't say that he's just doing what everybody else is doing. He's not. He's not by committee. No, he is not. No. So, and I think that gets missed in a lot of conversations and I've heard people have loved working with him. Like I've heard he's an incredible person to work for. Like I always think about like when Jason Momoa talks about him and like the love like grant Jason Momoa, like when he, when he connects with someone, like he clearly shows like a great amount of love and respect for the people that he works with in that industry. But like Zach has a special love. It feels like, and like everybody else, like there's people like, like Amy Adams would go on so many talk shows and be like, it's, it's so sad to see all this hate, that Zach gets like, like, yeah. cause it's like, you know, it's just hard because he's such a great person and like, he is so talented at what he does in many respects. And, and yeah, like maybe we don't entirely agree with like certain viewpoints that he has for characters or the approach that he has for certain things, but there's no denying that it's his. Yeah. And I just want to say it as another side note, I am super stoked for rebel moon. Oh, the cast he's lined up is insane. I, I am so excited for that, but Watchmen. Where do we even begin with this? There's like we talked for like twenty minutes. Well, I, I know exact. I know exactly where to start with this. All right, all right. A comedian died in New York. <laughs> A comedian got slapped at the Oscars. Oh no, it's back. <laughs> God damn it! What? <laughs> The slap has returned so much. No, but it's it's literally like the alternate reality that that Judd Apatow was envisioning. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's that that it, there's so many complicated things with it, but it's just anyway. You can't help. You can't, you can't help, help it. it. I can't help it. Um, low hanging yes. fruit. Um, so yes. this story it begins like as any movie would. It begins with a murder. <laughs> you know, it's all those classic Nancy Myers movies that begin with murder. Yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> it's, a, it's complicated. <laughs> the intern. Anyway, 
<laughs> yeah, so so um, e- Eddie Blake, as we come to find out, uh, played Eddie Blake. by uh, Jeffrey Dean Morgan, is uh, there's like a- an assassin comes in to kill him, and he throws him out the out of his window after beating him up. Beating him up now, like as they say, he's built like a linebacker. Like <laughs> he's built like a linebacker. Like they toss him out the window, and that's basically where the whole story sort of sets off. That's that's sort of the inciting incident of things. Yeah. Once once that happens, then um, that's when we sort of get into the world of Watchmen. Now, the world of Watchmen is an alternate reality. I yep. want to say this again, only because of, of the story Joey told me when we were watching the movie. That oh, I can't wait to tell this story. <laughs> um, this is not real. <laughs> this is an alternate reality. That was that's the whole point of the story of Watchmen is that they ask what if superheroes existed in reality, but mm-hmm. it's all also filtered through the viewpoint of eighties America, which was yes. dark, it was grimy, it was scary. There was there was all these different things going on, and you know, people like it's funny because like we talk about nostalgia, <clears throat> which is a big topic of the of the book and this movie. And how, uh, you know, these days we, we look at the 80s through rose-colored glasses and so many movie studios are trying to evoke the 80s and it's like, the 80s were not really all that good. <laughs> there was some really bad things in the 80s, dudes. Um, and so this movie feels like it evokes that that feeling and the just as the book did, where you put superheroes in this alternate reality and... It's, it's complicated. <laughs> I mean, yeah, because you have you have vigilantes, and you have there's only two superheroes that work for the government, as far as we know. One of them is Doctor Manhattan, who's the only character, technically speaking, unless you go with like a lot of these characters can kind of do some things that are a little bit superhuman. But he's the only one technically. He's the most ex- sorry. <laughs> he's oh god, and boy, he has superpowers. He he lifts his hand. And evaporates you. <laughs> like, it's not just like, oh, I'm super strong. Or, no, like, this is literally, like, I am I am God, you know? And then the other one being uh, Eddie Blake, uh, the comedian who was, who died in New York. And this this is being investigated by Rorschach, uh, brilliantly portrayed by Jackie Earl Haley. And he's, he's coming with the theory, like, what if somebody's trying to kill all the superheroes? Somebody's trying to kill superheroes. What's going on here? Like... He's, in many respects, he is very much like the conspiracy theorist sort of, um, like, he's got kind of like a right-winger's approach to how he does things. Like, everything's black and white. Either you're good or you're bad. That's it. And, unfortunately, he was kind of idolized <laughs> when this came out. And oh, it's like, man, you get yeah. you get the appeal of the character in many respects, but at the same time, it's just like, he's not a good person. No, um... I do want to say, like, and a lot of the, like, I was going to say, Jackie Earl Haley does an amazing job in this movie. I, when you said he was, like, one of those guys that was perfectly cast, like, like we think of, like, Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man, or we think of, I like to think of Mickey Rourke as Marv in Sin City. Like, like there's just some people that are almost tailor-made to sort of portray certain characters, and Jackie Earl Haley was meant to be Rorschach. Like, I don't, I, I, I can almost not see anyone else playing that character, ever. It almost feels like his career, like a career, def- the career defining performance mm-hmm. in a sense. Yeah. Um, really is terrific. Um, he gets the voice down, his just his body mannerisms. Um, I just think the whole thing, like 
he is always the scariest guy in a room. Uh, even in a room where there's a giant blue person who could evaporate you. Yeah. You don't, like, he is so unhinged. Like, I think about the scene where, you know, where he's in the prison, he, like, he does some insane shit, and he goes, this is what you fail to understand. I'm not locked in here with you. You're locked in here with me. And when you're a young person, something about that seems really cool, and then you get old, and you're like, that's Ooh. terrifying. <laughs> this is... Like, could you imagine... <laughs> Could you imagine if Rorschach went to the same prison as Red and Andy Dufresne? Oh my god. Oh no. I wish I could I wish I wish I could tell you that uh Rorschach got along with everybody. But this isn't some fairy tale shit. shit. <laughs> this isn't some ice cream for bedwetters. <laughs> um but he's great and he has to investigate all this stuff, right? So he has to he investigates the other former superheroes that we have. Um, one of the, which being, uh, Dan Dryberg, who, uh, was formerly the second Night Owl, played by Patrick Wilson, who was, like, his partner for a very long time. Mm. And Patrick Wilson, like, his Night Owl is very much like, like, Rorschach and Night Owl are sort of like Batman split apart. Yes. In a way. Like, like, Rorschach represents the sort of dark, paranoid aspects of Batman cranked up to 11 and like filtered through this really sort of messed up black and white perspective, whereas Night Owl's very much the kind-hearted, technologically advanced, intelligent version of Batman that sort of counter out counterbalances that a little bit. Um, and he's he's retired because like the whole story of of the book, it's uh, the story of the movie as well, obviously. But the story of the movie is um, that. In this alternate reality where superheroes existed and influenced history and historical events and, and, you know, which we see in like that great opening sort of montage scene to the Bob Dylan song, Times Are A-Changing, we learn that um, the government, especially because of like the police basically saying, you know, oh, you want them to do it, we're not going to, you know, screw that. And then like there's like the police strike. And that caused this uproar, and people rebelled against the superheroes, and they created something called the Keen Act, which, um, similar to The Incredibles, funny enough, um, uh, mm-hmm. was this act basically saying superheroes are are not allowed to exist anymore. Unless you are working for the government, superheroes, no-no. Um so, uh, as far as our main characters, we have, obviously, we have Dr. Manhattan, who we talked about. We have the comedian, who are both government-sanctioned superheroes. Um, then there's Rorschach, who is not government-sanctioned, but he does not care and continues to be Rorschach. Um, Dan, a.k.a. Night Owl, has retired. Um, we also have uh, Lori Jupiter, um, a.k.a. Silk Spectre, played by Malin Ackerman, who sort of works for the government, unfortunately, in a very kind of gross way, um, but also uh, is retired and doesn't do superheroes and didn't even want to be a superhero to begin with. And then we have Ozymandias, played by Matthew Good, um, a.k.a. Adrian Vite, who basically was one of the first superheroes to reveal his secret identity and took his superhero persona and created a conglomerate and became one of the richest people of all time. And so that's kind of where all these characters are when we first meet them. And Dan um, is a retired guy, and Rorschach basically says, listen, I think there's people coming to, to try and kill us. 
and that's where we sort of learn is that that's that's where like all these different like threads are starting to get pulled and we learn you know who's behind everything and we also get to learn who all of these people are Mm -hmm. and where they are in their lives like dan is very much like he feels incomplete when he's not night owl like he's sort of like he's sort of like he's living this mundane life um he's not entirely displeased with it but he's clearly not fully himself no like i think about that one great um there's a great panel in the original book where you where you see him after rorschach he's like yeah whatever happened and rorschach's like you quit and i think you see night out like dan is like kind of like holding his head and you see the night owl suit next to him I th- it's one of those like panels sorry it just sticks out in my head i agree um even I not agree. reading this book for a while but he is um you know yeah like and, that, and this comes through in, like, his sexual encounters as well, mm-hmm. where... He's very impotent, he's not, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And then, like, basically his best friend is an old dude, Hollis Mason, who was the original Night Owl from, the, from back in the day. So it's kind of like, oh, he doesn't really have, like, the greatest social life either. He's just day by day doing his best. <laughs> doing his best, you know... Um, and I love Patrick Wilson in this movie. Um, so I don't much. feel like, I, I feel like Patrick great... Wilson doesn't get enough credit, honestly, for a lot of stuff. We praised him in, uh, in our Aquaman. He's, he's um, so good. He hams it up so... and he's, he's having a fun. I love what he goes. Call me ocean master. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> he's a great villain and a great, uh, he could play a great hero and, um, I think Night Owl is really a great case for that. He wears the costume well. I, I think. do love the design, like the sort of updated version for the movie. Yeah, a great. Yes, me too. Um, I think he. I get. I think the a lot of the casting is really good for this movie. Like we talked about Jackie Earl Haley. We talked about uh, Patrick Wilson. I think Jeffrey Dean Morgan is perfect. is a, is a really great comedian. He's he's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> like. The comedian is one of those characters, like, he's such a, like, he's got so many different layers going on, but, like, he is an absolute, like, awful, awful character, because, like, and, and, and a lot of his, a lot of who the comedian is as a character is structured around this idea that he looked at the world and the way the world worked, especially in America, and decided to become a parody of it, which is why it's so hilarious when you see like some right wing people use the comedian as like an icon for themselves, and it's like you know, in like a weird way, like he's it's a parody of you, right? <laughs> um, <it's, laughs> like I remember like years ago, I got into a back and forth with someone, and um, not that I do that ever, but it happens periodically. But I got into a back and forth with someone, and um. He he was he was very sort of right wing forward and very like pro war pro violence kind of thing, and the whole time I'm like looking at his user icon on Facebook and I'm like it's the comedian from Watchmen and I'm like I'm I'm giggling to myself <laughs> I'm like Jesus Christ <laughs> um, like I think he's great no nah, but like he does some reprehensible things in this film. And, like, one of the first things we learn about him is that he attempted to rape um, Lori's mother, Sally Jupiter, played by uh, Carla Gugino, um, who then would later on um, uh, in her life meet up with the comedian again and have a sort of romantic connection, which would lead, um, plot twist, by the way, lead to the birth 
of Lori, who had no clue who her father was. Right. And we also learn that he was a massive aspect of the Vietnam War effort, um, where he took massive glee in killing the Vietnamese people and the v- and everyone involved in that. And um, he even gunned down a pregnant woman mm-hmm. and blamed Dr. Manhattan for not stopping him. Um, and he would also like, I think like, I even think about the bit when, uh, he's trying to like do riot control, but it just feels like in his brain, he's killing everybody, even though he's using rubber bullets. Yeah. Like he's got this like sinister grin on his face and like, it's like, he's such a deplorable character, but Jeffrey Dean Morgan is, he's so good at like this sort of like villain almost yeah and i also um dr manhattan in this movie um so good um, billy crudup billy crudup like he's he's really um exceptional and it's one of the characters where i feel like they keep most of his story intact because some some of the other people they, they might change stuff here and there but i feel like especially when they get to his backstory it feels like panel for panel like a straight up adaptation of mm-hmm. that um, which I, I was appreciated and, um, he does a really good job, especially to, and that's an impressive visual effect as well. Like for most of the movie, it's pretty seamless. It still uh, looks until he gets good. To, it still looks, except when he's on Mars where it, <laughs> it really looks, it really looks like fake on there, which surprises me <laughs> given that like in the other places they have him in more or less like real locations and it's just like, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is not calling attention to itself here, but on Mars, the, the thing that you would probably have the most visual effects working on, it looks <laughs> weird. Um, I think he's fan- he gives it like a quiet, like sort of power to Doctor Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Um, like even when, at the end when he gets when he's mad at Adrian, he, he's just like I'm disappointed. Like I before I was like the motion comic. It sounds like a, like a almost God yelling at you. This mm-hmm. one is like it's almost like Hal like saying I'm disappointed, Adrian. Very disappointed like it's very like because like the whole shtick with dr manhattan is that he's losing touch with humanity and it, yeah. and it's not even like entirely his like it's kind of there already but it's sort of manipulated a little bit um but with uh with this with this uh with this character um he feels distanced from humanity to the point where like he himself comes off with his demeanor almost unhuman but all but at the same time like billy crudup brings like a humanity to dr manhattan especially when we get to that monologue about miracles yes oh my god where that's one of my favorite bits honestly it's just he he's basically saying like listen i i lost all touch with humanity until that moment that Mm -hmm. he basically calls laurie a miracle yeah you know uh, from unfathomable odds two people that should never have concept you know been together created you yeah this genuinely decent great person like out of out of that contradiction just you it's it's so be- it's such a beautiful um expression of that and um again crude i think those four guys are really um exceptional that's not- and like malin ackerman i think does a good a good job um, in her, in her role, um, Matthew Good, 
<laughs> I but, think I have more of a problem with it than you do. I mean, I never really had much of an issue with it, but I 100% agree with where you're coming from. Because... Because... Yeah. You, you, go ahead. This, this is your take. So, <laughs> let me get... Sorry. Um, yeah. Listen, like, in in the comic book, Ozymandias, like, he looks like, like a Greek god, basically. Like, this dude... He, like, you you might as well just have, like, I don't want to say Arnold, but, like, somebody with Arnold's physique is this guy <laughs> who also happens to be one of the smartest people on the planet, right? Um, And he... It's a big twist, what happens, where it's, like, he's the quote-unquote supervillain. Mm-hmm. I'm saying quote unquote because it's like you could you know argue that, but um, <laughs> like you got you get him in this movie, and it is so obvious he's a Bond he is villain. The villain. He's a Bond villain, and Matthew Good is a really good, yeah, he's, <laughs> good he's... no e actor. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> like he's re- he's a really good actor, and I think he does a good job. It's just I think it was a miscast, and I think especially if you're somebody who had never read the book. Like, I'd read the book, so I knew, but, like, watching him, I'm like, it just feels so obvious. Like, I almost want, like, Tom Cruise as this character just to be like, oh, Tom Cruise is probably going to be the good guy, right? And it's like, oh, shit! He killed all those people! Which, you know what's funny, though? I think in 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 the context of the show, the HBO show, they have... Jeremy Irons playing Ozymandias, like the old Ozymandias, yeah. which in context makes more sense because at that point we already know Adrian had Adrian's the bad guy. Adrian's the bad guy. So like it, it'd be weird like if say they did Watchmen um when when um Jeremy Irons was was much younger and he was that role because then we would have that same effect. Whereas it makes more sense yes. with the show and um right. so it I, I it it would definitely have made more sense to have like someone. Who seems more heroic? Like, like how wild would that have been if it was Tom Cruise? I don't know if he would ever do it, but if no, it was ever Tom like Cruise, a, like just a name out of my hat because like he's usually a good guy in, or in like, movies. Or like, you know what? It you know what would have been good? Like a Chris Evans. Yeah. See, that would have been. Oh, that would have. Oh man, I want to live in that reality. Because that's like it's it's like Snowpiercer. Like imagine that sort of element. Like we're in Snowpiercer. He comes off this like really really genuinely good person like trying to like fight this the tyranny that they end up living on this train only to learn later on um his best friend he almost ate him as a baby and he killed his mom and ate him or something and ate his mom like like it's like holy shit what (laughs) like imagine that but like contextualized for ozymandias yeah and again it's nothing against matthew good it's just no you know, I, I just, it's mainly like my sort of preference for that character, especially because, um, you know, w- like you have scenes where like, you know, people are inter- interrogating him or like he shows up and it should, it shouldn't be so telegraphed that <laughs> he, that he is behind the master plan that's going on in this movie. Um, so yeah. that's, that's what I really want wanted to say, say about that. Uh, I mean, there's a lot to talk about, obviously, like. The comic book has some memorable imagery. This movie, I think, has some memorable shots and scenes. Mm. I think about um, when, like, Night Owl and the comedian are uh, uh, confronting the protesters. And I think about when the comedian jumps off of uh, Archimedes, jumps off the owl ship. Mm. Uh, Or one of my favorite lingering moments is where they they break Rorschach out of prison, right? And he goes after a big figure, and there's the swinging bathroom door. Yeah. Just... I love when you when you when you contextualize it as a Seinfeld moment. 
It's just, just ding, ding, It really is. It's not just like, imagining Dr. Manhattan as George. I'm tired of humanity, Jerry. All they do is nothing. Jerry. Then it's just comedian as Kramer going, Jerry. Malk, Malk, you gotta listen to me. It's all a joke. It's all a joke, Malik. Uh, <laughs> What's the deal with Rorschach? <laughs> you ever just see a friend of yours that his face keeps changing? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of like memorable shots, but I also feel like there's stretch of this movie where I felt a little bored. Well, it should be noted too, there's three separate cuts of this movie. Yeah, there's, let's talk about that. Let's yes, talk about that. There's there's the theatrical cut, there's the director's cut, which uh, according to Zack Snyder is the preferred method, and then there's the like ultimate fan cut, which is basically, um, you know, we talked, we mentioned it earlier. There was a animated film, uh, Tales of the Black Freighter, which if you've read the comic, in the comic there's a comic book within the comic um, to help as like a world building thing, but also as a way to contextualize Adrian Byte and, 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 and like sort of metaphorically kind of mirror why he ends up doing what he does in the book. Um, uh, basically, uh, for the film, um, to sort of, uh, I guess market the movie, they wanted to take the Tales of the Black Freighter comic that's in Watchmen and turn it into an animated film with Gerard Butler, who worked with Zack Snyder on 300 and um, for this ultimate cut they decided to integrate the Black Freighter story into into the film and so the ver- that's the version we ended up watching which is three and a half hours long like five minutes over three and a half hours long which uh, according to Joey might potentially be the longest movie we've ever watched on the show um because how long Titanic is what three? I'm just I think I, f- I feel like it's on the cusp of like a, I think it's like a little over three hours maybe. And then because Seven Samurai is like two out three hours twenty seven minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this this is the this is the longest. Um, and we did this because we love you guys, but also maybe hate ourselves. <laughs> um, you know, but um, plus I just th- bought the four K, and the four K only has the ultimate edition, so. Yeah, yeah, I only own the the only one I own on Blu-ray is the Ultimate Edition because the other one, theatricals on like streaming for like Hulu, I think, and I have the theatrical on DVD. Um, I'm glad that this version exists. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad uh, Tales of the Black Freighter. I definitely appreciated its presence. Um, within the movie, I think it does add a bit of dimension to the story. Um, I think a genuinely, genuinely incredible vocal performance by Gerard Butler. Really, mm-hmm. so good. I can when I read it when I read the comic, I, I imagine his voice. Um, I also think because the animated film was made for a direct to DVD market, it just it, feels weird. It, it feels weird putting it in a movie that is a very high budget production, and then you have these like weirdly animated sequences. There are some beautiful moments in it too, like of, of you know disgusting beautiful moments. I mean, but like mm-hmm. there are moments where you're like, okay, this was made for on a on a slim budget and that's not to discredit the animators or anything like that it's just you know that that was the nature of that project 
And, like, the, the main purpose of Black Freighter, again, uh, obviously to contextualize Adrian's actions, but also as, like, a world-building tool, because, like, you know, in a world of superheroes, they're not going to have superhero comics, necessarily. Yeah. Though, arguably, it feels weird, because there are posters for Batman number one <laughs> in the movie. But that's beside the point. Um, <laughs> like, the whole Night Owl bit, when you see, like, the the Batman... Right on the wall. Um, you know what? I because I remember somebody saying like, so, talking about like action com um, action comics number one mm-hmm. was that that was Superman's first appearance, right? Um, because like I remember somebody saying like that was a, that turning point is kind of like if you look at our reality versus that Watchmen reality, that is like the turning point for people. Okay, and then things get different. But then I also speaking of the Black Freighter, did you ever watch the Under the Hood? documentary that was on the blu-ray once um i think that one's really good too and they made that it's not something you watch in the movie but if i'm not mistaken you do read snippets of under the hood or like there's information from under the hood that pops up throughout like when you have the uh, the um when you have the graphic the collected yeah like in between each in between each issue um they have uh clips uh they have uh passages from under the red hood they have passages um, uh, under like the, the hood, red, red hood oh, is the oh, sorry. Batman. <laughs> yeah. Ah, yes, my bad. Under the hood, like a car. Um, they also have um passages from like Rorschach's psych evaluation when that happens later in the movie and later in the comic. Mm-hmm. They have uh, a piece written by Dan Dryberg. Um, like all this stuff is meant to be like world building and to sell, sort of help build up um what the world was like when Watchmen existed like that like it's basically saying okay this is what you missed yeah in a way and funny enough like speaking of the black freighter i don't know if you remember in the comic it we learned that the guy who created the black freighter comic helped make the giant squid yes that's right i didn't think of that. i was like oh yeah because i was like flipping through it and i saw that panel and i was like okay which helps sort of like make the connection more like like by the way adrian I think we're going to get, I think that's, that's, I want to get to this part, unless there's anything else you want to say about any of those other elements. Like, Cause there's like, sorry, I, I, cause I want, I was thinking about like this as an adaptation, you know? Yeah. Cause like, I, th- I assume you're talking about the ending, right? That's going to be the main part of this discussion, but I just think also just as a whole, as an adaptation okay. as well. Well, just to, just to kind of, cause this is this, this for the segue, let's say, <laughs> cause we've talked about the squid. But that's probably the biggest change, because obviously this movie has had many people consider it like a copy-paste. That's one of the big criticisms people have for Watchmen, is that it just feels like a copy and paste. Um, but it, if you really look into it, it really does feel different. Like, even, like, the characters say, like, something as simple as, like, Dan Dryberg in the comic feels much more terrified of Rorschach, whereas in the movie, he has more of a confidence to him, where that was gone in the in the comic. Like he was a little bit more like, <gasps> he's like a, the the Woody Allen of superheroes. Oh no, Rorschach <laughs> <laughs> getting ourselves into some crazy adventures. Wow. <laughs> you know what? From an aesthetic, yes. From that standpoint, not not from what he does. Anyway, anyway, continue. um, but. It's like moments like that, or even like how they recontextualize Rorschach and that Rorschach in the book 
feels more broken, more more kind of gross. Um, obviously, more hung up on sex than he is in the movie. Whereas in the movie, he feels more focused on the case. Um, whereas in the book, he feels more focused on like sexual sexualization of things and and how gross. Like he's very prudish in like a like a sort of gross way. And then he's like, oh, and by the way, the case. Um, so like, there's definitely some different characterization, but probably one of the biggest changes is the fact that in the end, like in the comic, famously, the book ends with a giant squid, which Adrian hired all these teams of people, like creative people, scientists to develop this giant monstrosity and then unleash it on New York City and kill millions of people. And that was sort of the, the catalyst for, you know, what stopped the nuclear war from happening. And then everyone was like, we need to make peace so that we can fight this giant alien that even though the likelihood of that happening, or I guess in the sense that they're not trying to like aim their efforts for something. Cause I think the squid technically by that point is already dead. Yeah. But, um, they're basically saying like, there's something it's basically Adrian using the giant squid to say, there's something greater out there that we should be fight that, um, as opposed to just us fight, like what we're doing seems nonsensical in the greater scheme that if there's aliens coming and trying to kill us, we should, we should band together. Whereas in the movie, Dr. Manhattan is framed by Adrian and kills significantly more people in Moscow, in America and many other places, major cities um, where Adrian has planted these like bombs essentially to kill a large amount of people. And so it's sort of reconceptualized by having America and Russia team up to fight Dr. Manhattan or to try to figure out a way to take out Dr. Manhattan. So it has that sort of weird, different vibe. That's probably part of the reason why I'm not particularly a fan of it, because it feels less hopeful and more like let's it's 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 a 9-11 thing. Again, going back to that in a weird way. But um. But that was sort of a massive change, which was which was kind of shocking. But in a weird, but in a way, it also sort of worked within the narrative that the movie is telling. Especially because there's so much more story you would have had to tell just to make the squid make sense. So Snyder himself even like said, just given what we were already doing, it probably wouldn't have made sense to do the squid. No, yeah, and I and I think it works well enough within the adaptation, um, but. I think I was saying this to you yesterday. This feels like an uncanny valley adaptation of Watchmen where it really does. It looks like Watchmen in a lot of areas. Like there are shots and panels like taken straight from the comic. There's certain like visual iconography that's obviously lifted. Like I think about when Dr. Manhattan is zapping people in Vietnam. Like I, I, mm-hmm. I, I make that connection obviously. Um, or where like night owl and the comedian are, are facing off against the protesters maybe with some changes, but thematically speaking, it feel it's weird how different it is and how different the characters are in a lot of areas that you wouldn't think about on like a first viewing. Like if you're like, we're like, I was like, I was like in high school and I'm like, Oh, this looks like what I read. And whenever I was talking to people about it and they were like, I didn't care for it. It was kind of different. I'm like, it feels like the exact same thing. What are you talking about? And then rewatching it. And it's like, it's not, it really isn't, which I'll no. say, I'll say, like in a sense, it's like okay, you could argue like it misses the point, but in another sense, because I'm always thinking about like how people just want the like the thing, the comics they love, just to be put on the screen, and I think sometimes right. it's just boring just to have because they're just seeing the same thing. Like okay, if you want that, just go read the comic then. Like I, there's yeah. no there's no need to put it up on the screen because whatever they do on the screen is just going to be the same thing, 
whatever. And I want them to do different things, but it also just feels like just different from what, what Watchmen is about, I guess. You know? I, I think, I think the two biggest things that come to my brain as far as why, like as far as like missing the point thematically of the book, on one hand, I think of the aspect of violence and I think of how Alan Moore would go on and even talk about like V for Vendetta, talking about Watchmen. And if you read those, the violence is sparse to almost non-existing. And it's basically like when he, when he adds these types of characters who have, who are violent by nature and by what they do, right. Um, he does it under the, under the understanding that he's questioning whether violence is the right choice in any sort of circumstance. And so it's, he's almost, he's almost, um, uh, criticizing his own protagonists. Like, just because you're the title, like he, I think in that interview, I say, it's like, just because you're the title character of your story, why does that free you from credit, from being uh, criticized for being violent? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So, um, so that was a big aspect of, of, uh, Vendetta, especially Watchmen, and that, you know, these are characters who are violent by nature, but the violence in no way is glorified. It's in no way looked at. Like, obviously, it's in a comic, so, like, it's going to look a certain way and it's going to feel a certain way, but it's meant to, like, be portrayed as as gross and, and unnerving and uncomfortable. And in the film, there are definitely moments of that, but there's also several moments where the action feels heightened. It's Like, it, it feels, feels cool. You know. Like it feels cool. Like, like you see, like the whole, like, and, and there's some great action scenes. Yeah, there's some amazing. Like, I love the prison action scene. Oh yeah, when they're breaking Warshak. Like, it's so well done. And 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 with those characters, at least to a certain extent, it makes sense that they would have some like a kind of a cooler moment. But um, like all the superhero landings and all that kind of different stuff, like it does feel sort of weird that they're sort of glorifying these characters who are meant to be betrayed as flawed and sometimes awful people. Like if that's probably part of the reason why Rorschach was sort of rooted for, and for many people in many respects that, you know, here's this character that's being sort of put on a pedestal visually or thematically. And so like, it just, it feels like it sort of changed there. And then, um, I, I lingered too much on the violent part that I forgot the second one. <laughs> the violence, um, the story. Violence, violence, and the um, nostalgia. Oh, there you go. Yep, I knew this. Yes. This was a big thing when we were watching the movie. This was a big thing you wanted to talk about. You have the floor, sir. Because, listen, in this day and age, especially with the fact that we have so so many superhero adaptations, and so many studios want to capture what the sense of cinema was from back in the day. Like we were talking about the eighties and how everybody wants to try to like emulate the eighties. Um, they forget that nostalgia, nostalgia is great in, 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 in small amounts. Mm -hmm. You know, it's nice to have that reminder, like how great was it to do this or how great was it to do that? Like we talked about that with last night in Soho, yeah. but also like last night in Soho, it's nostalgia is, can be blinding. Yes. to reality it could be blinding to the truth and um the book was very much about like how like we have all these people like hollis mason is a character who in the comic reminisces about the great times he was as you know he was a superhero and and then when he is attacked by the top knots he's just killed mm. it's just brutal he get he he's not able to defend himself nothing it's like he's just killed and 
it's sort of that like whereas in the film you know we see which in the director's cut the hollis mason death scene is is re reinstated but it's portrayed in such a way that hollis mason is remembering the glory the glory days and sort of his nostalgia is is sort of reaffirmed and that you know it feels the movie feels very pro nostalgia which feels like it almost counteracts itself because the movie is trying to adapt the comic in that way and so like i see that whole opening sequence of times there are changing um and how like you see all these characters and how they're fitting into the world as it changes through the decades and it almost feels like that scene alone does a better job of kind of taking that theme from the original book whereas we get to later moments and you have all this nostalgia reinforced and it feels contrasting a little bit i think about the line uh that that sally jupiter says you know where like mm-hmm. the like the future you know as you get older the future gets darker and darker and then the past even the grimy parts Just gets, get brighter they get brighter and in the book it, it's it's a great line and it's it's in the book too but like in the book is a very different context um yes they're still talking about the same things but like the book has an understanding that this is kind of more sad than it is like oh it's pit- it's sort of pitiful in a yes. way like you you pity the you pity these people that you know they're things are so dark that they're just harping on to the to the past but then you're like the past wasn't that great i think that was one of my things with with, with sally jupiter is that she's not like pitiful in this movie which sounds like weird no. to say and it's like i i just feel like they got that wrong in the movie uh, i i almost feel like that i like, it's funny you say because i almost feel like that that same thing is sort of a through line through a lot of these characters yeah because a lot of these characters feel more confident than they should yeah like you know going back to dan you know he he feels a lot more confident and i almost feel like snyder was maybe too afraid to tackle the characters in the way that they come off that way cuz he probably wanted them to seem more more like a superhero but like that's the thing i like about the watchmen story is that you know I, and we like superheroes here we've talked about a number of superheroes here but it's nice when you read watchmen and they're just they're just people they're human beings with, yeah. with like with flaws and stuff like what if superheroes are real well guess what they're not just going to be, not all of them going to be, like, space aliens that are raised by, like, the nicest people or, like, no bil- nice billionaires or a guy who finds, like, a green... Ra- no, a lot of the time there's going to be people with, it's, like... It's it's fantasy. It's a fantasy. It's escapism. It's fantasy. And that's fine. But, like, if these were real people, you'd have somebody who is a superhero because... Not because they wanted to do this, but because their parent did it. You know that that's, that's something that would be there. Or somebody who is as powerful as Dr. Manhattan would be a tool of the government on some level, you know, you have like evil, like, like I think Adrian Veidt, I'm like, this is e- something, some shit Elon Musk would do, you know? Yes. <laughs> yes. This is- when he's not buying, when he's not trying to buy Twitter, he's going to craft an alien to destroy the world, to bring it together. You know, you're going to have somebody with like, you know, uh, you, you just like sexual issues, you know, who just can't get it up. Or somebody who's just just so mentally disturbed. That's one of my favorite things in the book. Like, Rorschach just can't conceive of a world where all the problems are solved, right? He can't conceive of a utopia. The superheroes, like, I think about, um, I think about that DC, really great DC documentary about supervillains. Where, like, in stories, the protagonist is the character with a wish, right? Yeah. And the antagonists are the characters trying to prevent the wish. And a lot of the times, superheroes themselves 
are technically antagonists because they're the supervillain usually is the one who has a wish take over the world piss off batman um yeah uh, throw a green rock at superman's face and the superheroes are the ones preventing that and he just can't conceive a world where he has no place in it because what yeah. what else is he good for he, he gets the new frontiersman or, or whatever and he has like a picket sign like what what job skills does he have you know, and he's got nothing. He just, it's just like, you know what? Might as well, I'm just, just kill me and I'll put this journal is out there. So that way, if anything happens, it can undo, <laughs> it can make the world into my vision of it. He's, oh my gosh. But like all that being said, um, the, the whole, I was talking to you about, um, as far as adaptations are concerned, like the difference between the the Snyder approach versus like say the Robert Rodriguez approach because you know Robert Rodriguez when he made Sin City sort of almost feel like like pioneered quote unquote this sort of way to like just take the panels from the comic and turn it into the film and Snyder sort of adopted that and that was kind of the that was sort of the end really like it didn't really kind of continue with anyone else from that point like with with Robert Rodriguez, he was very adamant in, ver- in various interviews that he wanted to make Frank Miller's like he's not Robert Rodriguez's Sin City, Frank Miller's Sin City. Even when you pick up the movie or you see a poster for it, it will say Frank Miller's Sin City. And also, Frank Miller was a co-director. Like, and and Robert Rodriguez um, left the Directors Guild so he could work with Frank Miller. And have him be a co- because like when you work in the director's guild, at least at that time, I don't know if it's changed, but you were never allowed to have a co-director. Like it was always just you, and that's it. Hmm. And so he he took himself out of the director's guild so that he can have Frank Miller and Quentin Tarantino for a scene, um, direct this film together. Mm-hmm. So again, it could be changed. I don't know the whole context of the story, but I just remember hearing that and it was like that was crazy. Um, Zach, on the other hand, is making Zack Snyder's. 300 or he's making Zack Snyder's Watchmen and so as far as like everything like it might look copy and paste there might be panels taken because obviously they use sto- the, the the panels as storyboards for when they're making the movie um, there might be like you know obviously one of the first famous images we see is comedian being thrown out of a window which is in the comic but other than that like it feels more like it's aesthetically faithful to a T yeah Whereas a lot of the narratives might be stuff taken from the book, but it's recontextualized one way or another. But one thing that Snyder did focus on was pop culture references yeah, and how we view the world through pop culture to the point where like um, there's music cues and there's songs that are taken from famous movies. Um, there's a Dr. Strangelove reference when we see the, the war room with Nixon and everybody where it looks just like Dr. Strangelove. And it's even like, obviously a lot of Snyder stuff is very desaturated, but this was so desaturated that it was almost nearly black and white. Yes. Yes. And so like, that was something that he focused on. Whereas um, the rest of the movie felt like it sort of took a separate approach to what the book was saying. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I agree with that 110%. But with all that, with all that said, I think we still, we still like the movie. It's just, yeah, it is a little different. And listen, this movie is kind of a miracle that it that it even exists. Like I think about all the things that are in a Watchmen that you have to do for a Watchmen movie. That the things you have to adapt and change to make it, even to make it fit for a three and a half hour movie, because like so much, so much that you have to alter. 
you know, because always people when people think about certain comic book runs, they say, "Oh, you got to make it a mini series or make it a TV show kind of thing." And this is this is you don't really it's just a movie, so you got to tell the whole the whole story of Watchmen <laughs> in a single in a single like lengthy movie, but a movie, you know. And I think um, you got to give them credit for that, honestly. For like, regardless of how you feel about this, you know, they tried and they they did a pretty stellar job in many respects. Yeah. Real quickly, this this feels like we're winding down a little bit, but I do want to talk about one more thing that we mentioned. No, please, yeah, Alan Moore. Yes, we want to talk about Alan Moore. Yes. So here's the thing: uh, this whole double feature is obviously based around the idea of talking about the works of Alan Moore being adapted into film. But if you know, famously enough, Alan Moore hates adaptations of his work, but he also just hates adaptations. Mm-hmm. And we, we talked about that a little bit, I believe. Um, you know, this conversations gone on and i i've enjoyed it but like i forget some of the things that were mentioned earlier it's like did we talk about that mm-hmm. yes okay um but uh alan moore um like just a, just a brief history alan moore when he got into the comic book industry um you know he worked he was working at dc and he made all these iconic books one of them was watchmen and he even brought v for vendetta which was initially published from through a magazine uh he brought it to america and dc published it with them um, and B- DC basically said, look, we're, we're going to make a deal with you. We're going to publish your works. And if at any point these books go out of print, you get the rights back. And he was immediately like, awesome. Let's do it. Little did he know that the books became like when the books became massive hits, DC would never at any point stop publishing them. So for the rest of Alan Moore's life, he never got the rights to Watchmen back. He never got the rights to V for Vendetta back. And obviously they turned them into films and he did not want his names associated with these versions. It's like under the context that people will watch him and say, oh, this is just like the book. So I don't need to read the book. And it's like Alan Moore put all this time, effort, blood, sweat, and tears into writing these comics and with his collaborators. Um, and, you know, while he doesn't want to deny the opportunity for Dave Gibbons or David Lloyd to you know, be involved in the adaptations on their end, um, since they're very much as involved in the creative process as Alan Moore was, he did not. Mm-hmm. And so, um, basically, you can. It's just this whole idea that you know, writers and artists and creative people just constantly getting screwed over by by major by major industries, whether you know the film industry or comics or whatever. Especially comics. I mean, we talk a lot about this idea of writers and artists never getting credit for stuff that's used like especially in marvel movies it's kind of it's kind of unprecedented how often in marvel movies they use characters um from creators who never get the credit for the creations that they're using yeah and it's and even just how much they're paid is ridiculous Mm -hmm. like and you know like i think of how you know people talked about working with Marvel, say, versus, versus working with DC as far as adaptations, like, you know, we're not talking about the quality of, of anything, just talking about from a business standpoint, you know, people have said working with Warner Brothers is a little bit better than working with Disney, just because at least Warner Brothers will pay you and give you, you know, a decent wage, whereas Disney feels like they're paying you pennies for something that you yourself created. And sometimes your name doesn't even show up in the credits. And there are people out there who are so ridiculous with this. Um, 
and just as in general, like there are people who are very much like pro producer, pro like executives. They're like, oh, they're the guys that 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 you know that make that put out the money for these things. And I'm like, listen, they would not. Have they didn't a do red, the work. They would not have a goddamn red cent to their name if it weren't for these characters. These characters were not, are the money. If it were not for these, if it were not for these characters, who again were created by these people, by these people, who put yes. the effort in. Yes, like you know. Like, like you know, I think about uh, Siegel and Schuster, like you know, the creators of Superman. Oh, yeah. That's one of the most tragic of all these, yes. all these things, of course. You know, and then we t- Bill Finger. Think about Bill Finger. Bill long- Finger didn't even get. Listen, Bill Finger. In case you don't know this, Bill Finger is the co-creator of Batman, who's arguably one of the most iconic superheroes of all time. And Bill Finger never got credit. Think about this. He never got credit for the creation for the co-creation of Batman until like single digit number of years ago. Like 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 I want to say like four or five years, six years so, ago. Well, well, because like because B- isn't his name in BVS? Like in BVS is the first Batman film or the first film with Batman in it to have with Bill Finger as a credit as a co-credit. That's just it's just so at least great. as far as like. Big fu- big budget movie, I think. Because most of the time when you see those credits, the, usually the only time that you see like a name attached is like created by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko or Stan Lee and Jack, uh, the character created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so many other characters, they don't get, they really don't get the proper due, especially if they're adapting specific runs of stories where it's like mm-hmm. it's more, almost more far removed from like the works of Stan Lee. You know, ultimately, we're just advocating for people get paid. Like there was, because there were, uh, um, there was a lawsuit recently. Sorry to interrupt you, but there was a lawsuit recently with like Jack Kirby. A lot of like, I believe it was, was it Jack Kirby character. I, I think it was. I think so. It was. Okay, I Jack, think so. Think about how many characters Jack Kirby's been involved with, right? Jack Kirby was a fucking icon. A fucking icon, <laughs> right? But like, there was like, you know, a lawsuit. You know where they want they you know the retain the rights to those characters and people were so worried. Oh no, they're not going to be in my movie. I'm like dipshit. They're going to be in your freaking movies. Just Disney just have to pass the pass to cut a check. That's all they have to do. Like that's the only thing. That's that's and it. they fail to do that. What what do you what do you think they're going to start Iron Man Studios? Like what the? Oh, are you an idiot? What is this? They're just gonna they're just gonna make all these different movies of just Iron Man. Just uh you know we're gonna do like. Tony Stark, but it's Iron Man in this way. It's like no, we're no. Gonna, we're gonna bring Iron Man to DC, guys. Everyone's like, <laughs> everyone is stupid. <laughs> like, oh, and I know people like try to like like counter that with like, oh, but Jack Kirby didn't want his family to get the world. But you know what? What you know what? What if I created? If I created um uh back scratcher Silver Surfer back? If I created listen, I want my kids to get the residuals of Silver Surfer. If I created Silver Surfer, <laughs> or if I created Back Scratcher Man, you know, whatever, whatever, great character, right? Back Scratcher Man, like I, I should, you know, get a say in the fate of this character, or at least the like, I should get uh, some stake in what they're doing, especially monetarily, yeah. you know, exactly. So like, like watching, like watching that interview with Alan Moore, and I sent that to you, um, and watching that interview with Alan Moore, like. He, I will say, he does come off kind of pessimistic, but nothing he says doesn't make sense to me. But he also comes from a place where he's been personally affected. That's the, exactly that's the diff, like the thing too. Like the the, con- the the contextualize of it is very much that. Yes, um, and you get it, and it's just like you feel you feel that, and it's like it just kind of sucks. Like big, like these big companies 
just said, listen, we're still publishing it. I'm sorry. Ugh. Not they don't really give a shit. No, <laughs> but I, I was also thinking about um, I think about like Patreon, and it's one of my favorite things to come out of the internet where it's like, hey, if you want to support this creator, like, and these these are smaller people, like, yeah, I could put, I can spend a couple bucks a month and send them money, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I was also gonna say like I love like like t- uh, Kickstarters or Indiegogos for like like creators, like I like one of my favorite comic writers, artists of all time. Um, is Sean Murphy, mm-hmm. and like he's done so many great things. Like he's done some great Batman comics and a few things here and there. Right. But um, he he started a whole campaign for something called the Plot Holes. There's this whole whole own original creation, and I immediately contributed it. Contributed to it. I have my hardcover copy right here, signed by him. Um, I've read it. I've I've, I've I got to finish reading it, admittedly. But <laughs> I've, I've read I've read a good chunk of it. It's very good. It's fantastic. I love it. And, you know, it's just, I, I'm a huge fan of his and I'm supporting him. Yeah. Like, you know, it, it's one of those things where the trouble is a lot of our favorite characters, a lot of our favorite properties, they're controlled by companies. Like, I, like, think about it. Like, oh, you like, you like Star Trek? Oh, guess what? That Paramount's got that. You like Star Wars? You like Marvel? You like Pixar? Disney's got that stuff. Warner Brothers has the DC, the entire DC shtick, you know? It's tricky. All, and I, I think that's that's the important thing to realize, especially with these, is that there are people who work behind, who work on these things. These aren't just, like, this is, art, like, assets to a company. You know, it's always so funny. It was no, like, they're not. Our, our, our corporate assets include Spider-Man, Mickey Mouse, <laughs> as if there's some, like, real estate holding. It's like, look, no. Listen, <laughs> listen our brand is Mickey Mouse, Boba Fett. <laughs> Kermit the Frog. Kermit the Frog and Thanos. <laughs> just yeah, it, it, it's like the. It's not like Kevin Feige didn't make these characters as important as Kevin Feige is. Kevin Feige, mm-hmm. Bob Chapek did not create these characters. They just are the 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 money managers of these of these massive things. Okay, that's what they and- are. <laughs> That's all their role is. I'm sorry, this feels like a, like a rant, and I, this is my fault. But it's but it's an important one. Yeah, it's, it's an important one. You know where you can support your favorite creators and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it does. I will say it does feel kind of ironic that we we just talked about these two movies and then went. But ever, but Alan Moore deserves more. <laughs> he does. It, it, that's that's the tricky part of. I mean, again, that's the problem with all these corporations. They just own everything. Yeah, there's like yeah. a handful of companies that own everything. And think about it, like Disney bought Fox a couple years ago, and they own that stuff. But where, where is it? I don't know. Um, I think these are interesting movies to talk about, though. Mm-hmm. As far as adaptation, and I think especially V for Vendetta, I think it's just a great movie. But mm-hmm. you know, I, I I think they are fascinating um, adaptations of Moore's work. And it and it brings up interesting conversations that makes it like like episodes like this worth. We've talked about the uh, it's, uh, we're over an hour and seventeen minutes, <laughs> like Jesus. But it was but but it's stuff that's worth talking about because yes. it's you know you look at these films and you look at the way they're interpreted, and then you know the creators of these books' response to everything, and it's worth talking about. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. folks. If uh, you enjoyed this episode, uh, listen to us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, 
Apple. Look out! Look out for the uh, two dudes cut and the ultimate cut in which we incorporate another radio drama. Uh, <laughs> where we just put uh, through. You will. There will be an edit of this where there will be increments of other radio dramas that we did just splashed in there for no reason. <laughs> Uh, 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 sound, I, that's sound, too much work given to John and Kenny and Joey. I'm not yeah, doing it. No. Uh, SoundCloud, uh, we're on those platforms. Uh, you can contact us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Give us a double feature suggestion. We'll try to, you know, we do have a set schedule, but like I said, if we find some interesting double feature suggestions, we do like to, you know, to we do like to change course, um, as it were. Um, mm-hmm. d- what are your favorite works of Alan Moore, for one? Uh, you know, do you like it's complicated? You know, <laughs> give us a Nancy Myers double feature. Come on! Oh yes, that that requires requires real bravery to do that. Um, <laughs> that, uh, that that said, uh, I think that's gonna wrap it up for this week's very lengthy, but I think uh, worthwhile episode of Two Dudes One Double Feature. Check us out next time. Have a good night, everyone. Happy birthday, mom. for listening to two dudes one double feature please follow us on instagram facebook and twitter special shout out as always to john and kenny armstrong thank you guys for everything you do we love you both so much and of course stay tuned in two weeks for a brand new episode of two dudes one double War milk, there's nothing better.